Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome to another episode of Those Conspiracy Guys. This time, hold on to your hats and your diva cups. This one's going to be fucking rough. Uh, this time, we're talking about 50 years of horrifically dark and well-hidden uh, Catholic church pedophile sexual assault. Welcome to the show. Uh, this one's going to be, you know, rough. So, uh, get mind your heads if this is going to fuck you up, or if you think uh, you might be severely affected by hearing. I mean, we don't tend to use uh, the, the, the torture porn thing here on those conspiracy guys, because, you know, like, if you want to go and see that stuff, you find places online, you can go and look at it. Um, but some of the stuff that we're describing in this uh, is part of a documentary series called The Keepers which if you've seen it on Netflix from 2017, uh, it, it shook us. It shook us. Um, it's about the case of a nun called Sister Kathy Sesnick, who was murdered, and uh, it embroils a conspiracy to cover up abuses within the Catholic Church. And there are some like pretty graphic details that were described in the documentary that we talked about today. So earmuffs. If you don't want to uh, hear that kind of thing, I'm not really good at giving trigger warnings because we're not used to it here. But like, you know, if that's not your bag or you feel like, you know, you might get a bit upset, just don't listen. Uh, watch the documentary and there's loads of places online you can go and find out more about this case. If indeed you don't want to listen to us talking about it. But today, for the drop of golden sunshine, uh, levity, uh, humor, and to put Put a bit of schmott on me, which is the Irish for manners, I guess. Is it? Yeah. Uh, it's the love of my life, the the bearer of the fruit of my loins, the <laughs> uh, always effervescent and uh, fantastically appointed um, Miss Claire Fox. Hello, Gordon. Mi- Ms. Claire Fox, I think, is it? Ms. No? Yeah, is I go it? with Ms. Yeah. Ms. How are you? Um, I'm well, thank you. It's been a hectic day. It has. We have a baby. We do. And she's lively. Lively. How are you feeling about that? <laughs> Where would she leave it, as mm. they also say in Ireland? Yeah. 
lot of Irishness going on today. Yeah. Um. Yeah. How's uh, how's just for the folks at home wondering how's being a mother? Um. It's a pleasure and a privilege and mm. uh, tiring. I'm sure, anybody <laughs> seeing me and tiring, uh, <laughs> or maybe even hearing me uh, recognizes a few extra lines, a few extra, <laughs> few, extra <laughs> few extra lines of coke <laughs> to keep you lines in my face. Awake but, in the morning. Um. No, it's a pleasure. I'm. Delighted to be a mama. I do feel that um, I can't even say how good our child is for fear of boasting. There's so many people text me when we were, mm. when I say we were pregnant, I mean, you've you've bounced your body back. I'm still, I'm still holding on to the eight month shape. But uh, when we were pregnant, that it was going to be terrible. We were never going to get any rest. There was going to be, you know, good luck sleeping again. <laughs> And yeah. that has not been the case. And I, I kind of almost feel a small bit guilty talking to other parents by going like, yeah, she goes to bed at like 10 o'clock at night and like some of the o'clock in the morning and she, yeah, she she might wake up at two. She has a tooth. like but She's not always up until 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> when she sleeps in naps during the day, she's fine. She <laughs> likes to get the 10 o'clock news to know what's going on in the world before yeah. she goes to sleep. Yeah. But um, she's a fear of missing out. She really does. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I feel I feel that she's so good. She's very good. She'll be yeah. listening to this in the future now. Yeah, she you are very good, Joy. Yeah. Um Yeah, she's very good. And yes, we did get a lot of warnings. But I think um one thing I think is that a lot of people don't go um or most people would not say like the gushy stuff when you tell them you're expecting because like the discharge and stuff like that. No. <laughs> Gushing as in, oh my god! Oh right, right. You know. Emotional gushing. Yeah, right, right. Um, most people go like, um, I, you know, it's like anything. If somebody says, "How are you?" They're like f- going through the Rolodex, going, "What's the shit thing that happened to me today?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'll talk about it because it's really, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it took us a long time to get used to that. Um, let's say, like, American people are much more positive. Like, if you ask them how they're doing, they, they usually tell you the best things that happened. Yeah, and we're always like show offs, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a Instagram cultural mentality. thing. It's a cultural thing. And I don't know if we told people, if we were living in the States, for example, if we told people we were expecting, would they be like, good luck to never sleeping again? Yeah, a lot of those people were Americans. And some oh, were English they? People. Yeah, oh, I mean, right, like, okay. they were like... Well, there goes my theory. <laughs> no, but uh, these are the people who are online people. Most yeah, people are... Uh, yeah. Might no, be disingenuous like, to your face and be like, fucking, them cons are going to never sleep Well, again. I would have had a lot of people face to face say that, things like that to me, like, um, oh, uh, how do you look without sleep? Because get ready for it. <laughs> That's some passive aggressive bullshit. Whereas actually I look like I'm not sleeping and I am getting sleep, so. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe. Well, I think you look wonderful. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Effervescent, which is any, word If for any fizzy. skin companies <laughs> want yeah, to yeah. send me free stuff, I know I'm only joking. Um, I got an email today from Manscaped. To see if they want to send me some Do stuff. Do they want a womanscaped? Well, apparently women can use manscaped too, so right. we'll see. We'll okay. see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, these balls, smooth as eggs, son. Oh, yeah. That's that's for, and we both can enjoy that. Mm. That's pretty good, isn't um, it? Manscaped. Um, so yeah, it's great having a baby. I love it. It this is. This is the first uh, show we're recording of 2022. If you can fucking believe that or not. Yeah. Uh, between close contacts and being sequestered away from everybody, and uh, but lo and behold, we've got. I'm just giving give a bit of housekeeping now before we get into the darkest shit I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, we got the fiber broadband here on the 20th of December, Woo-hoo. and it was fantastic. I got to upload all the videos up to Vimeo, all the old episodes, and 
all the stuff that we've been recording all through the year and all from, from the end of last year after we moved out of Dublin, I couldn't upload anything because the internet was so shit here. Mm. Like two megabit upload. Uh, shit was timing out. I was like, brilliant. Yes. Spent the whole of January uploading stuff. And uh, Vimeo switched off our fucking account. Can you believe it? So uh, politely, fuck them. Um, and also we've had to disengage from the Discord server because there's people like uh, higher side chats and macroaggressions and stuff like that are getting switched off. So we're moving to a new service called Gilded, and uh, the link for that will be in the description below if you want to come in, join in, and tell your parental stories, and uh, we may make a, a parents channel, Conspiracy Kids or whatever. I might finally start chatting on it. Yeah, we could, <laughs> we could give some tips and stuff like that about uh, how much whiskey to give before it shows up on tests, so the child will sleep from 10 until 8 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Whiskey on the gums. I wouldn't make a, a Madeleine McCann jokes. Oh, yeah. I, I'm allowed now. We can... I've made them before. We're leaving the leaving the baby with somebody. You're just like, yeah, just give it just a little bit less than what the McCanns give. Like a, a minus I can't McCann laugh at that. I we can. We haven't been to Sorry. Portugal yet. Can't laugh at that. So get ready for the darkness, folks. Mm. Um, and I would reiterate the trigger warning. Um, I know I've. Been, <laughs> I was going to say I haven't been on a lot of shows, but I always seem to be on these type of shows. Yeah, because you bring that drop of sunshine and yeah. you save me from <laughs> the fucking pit of eternal despair. Yeah. Well, anyway, I would say I would urge anybody who um, doesn't want to hear stuff relating to um, sexual abuse and particularly child sexual abuse. Yeah. That this is very upsetting material, and um, I always think that like. Some of the scariest stuff, scariest stories you can hear are stories that happened and where justice was not only not served, but was, um, oh, denied. The opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking hidden. Yeah. Um, so I would just, yeah, I'd urge you, uh, as well as Gordon did, to um, maybe give it a second thought. If you do think this might upset you, the I'm not content. Very, I'm not very good at trigger warnings because I'm like, well, sure, look it. If you don't like it, just don't listen. But yeah. at the same time, I know there's a lot of like we're fifty fifty men and women on this one, mm. and when you're looking at one in one in three, possibly one and a half in three women have had some sort of um, sexual assault. And I would dare say it's probably more if you count mm. less and less version, le- like less severe versions of sexual assault. But one in three women have been mm. like, you know mentionably sexually assaulted mm. at some point in their lives and uh like you're going to go through some shit like this one it's not again torture porn i, I, I classify the porn part as like uh demonst- demonstrations of uh, gratuitous material without merit mm. which is kind of like the loose definition of pornography so like sexual content it doesn't have to be sexual it's just that's what it's um associated with nowadays it can be any kind of gratuitous imagery be it violent or sexual for no uh, mer- meritorious reason. But this is like to tell the story of Jean. I'm going to say Wainer. So I'm going to pronounce her now. Okay. This is how I got it from a few different people. Jean Wainer, who is um, the Jane Doe in this uh, case that we'll be talking about as we go along. Like some of her testimony in the, the, the Keeper's documentary was fucking rough. Mm. Now, like hard to listen to, hard to watch. And that's only her telling it. Like bananas. Mm. So yeah, I mean... Um, the documentary was fantastic. Yeah, it was very, what very, did you, very uh, well What did you think of it? We've watched it twice and we watched it in 2017 when it came out first. Yeah. And it shook us and we haven't watched it since until a couple of weeks ago. It did and I think it particularly shook me because I watched it when it was only re- recently released and I didn't hear anything about it. 
Um, yeah, kind of. And I thought it was like one away, of the. Right? Uh, yeah, I thought it was one of these like, uh, you know, crime stories of like unsolved murder. Mm. So that's the headspace I went into it with, and yeah, it was very shocking. And Shit then, up, and it really stuck with me. Like it really upset me. You know the way they were treated first of all, and then the way they were treated when they were saying what had happened to them. Mm. Um. Yeah, so it was just hor- horrific stuff. And it really, yeah. Even my sister was saying recently that she, it stayed with her. It was one of those, you know, and we've seen a lot of them. We've seen a lot of horrendous stories being portrayed, even just if you just take Netflix. Like, um, but for something to stay with you that much. And I think that's also like a testament to the way the documentary was made. Yeah. Um, And it sounds to me like when I've heard him in- interviewed Ryan, the... Um, director Ryan White, I think his name is. Yeah, like he just sounded so like he wasn't out to make a documentary. He 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 really cared about yeah. like that wasn't his you know primary goal. He wanted to have these people be heard for the first time, you know, and uh, he just really seems to have built great relationships with them and really really cared about them. Um, and I think that comes across, like the way the story is told. You end up going, but I wonder how is Jane? I wonder how is, you know. Yeah. And People have a connection with, yeah. with you or you with them. Yeah. Uh, apparently he spent uh, three years in Baltimore. Mm. He went down just poking around because he heard the stories and, you you know, it's a legacy case. The shit happened in 1968, 1969 and then resurfaced in the 1980s, resurfaced in the 90s. And then in 2001, after the death of one of the main bad dudes, and then uh, in 2010, then with an open another open case. So like this has been coming back and back and back and back. And Ryan went down to Baltimore and said, "Let's have a poke around, see what we can find." Like he he ended up getting sucked into this um, crazy web of deceit, uh, high, like super high level. What would you call it? Like se- sexual impropriety, and then the cover up thereof mm. in Catholic Church, in the police, in. Governmental organizations in like everybody, like everybody was involved in this shit. Mm. And I mean, to be honest, like, we know what we know about the likes of Pizzagate. We've just seen the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. That, like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Do you know, nothing happened out of that. Um, I'm not even going to get into it. Like, it's a melter. We're going to do it. You, me, and Ed Salmon are going to do a Pizzagate episode. Yeah. And I'm waiting until all of that does to settle to finally get everything into it. But, like, nothing happened. And it's very unsatisfying. We watched that documentary in 2017. And us being from Ireland, we know, like, yeah, priests be at some shit sometimes. And most of the time, it's fine. And they're sound. And pillars of the community, vocational, loving people who just want to do well. And it's not a but but for my experience, it's not about God and Jesus and banging on the Bible and the fucking response oriel psalm and a letter from Paul to the Corinthians. Maybe Paul, who's it Paul? One them cons anyway. Like it's about people. It's about your community. It's about somebody who's not wrapped up in his own family because he's not allowed to have one that ends up kind of injecting his goodwill, his vocational nature, and his I don't know, selflessness into family situations that maybe haven't got room for somebody in them to be selfless. But at the time that this was going on, um, 
it wasn't that. That's that was the idea, or that's what we were told to be, believe that a priest should be. And I think we've well, all, I know priests like I that. I was though. just going to say, I think we have all known yeah. priests like that. Um, but the problem was that in the fifties, sixties, and even seventies, and in some cases in the eighties, eighties and nineties. Um, yeah. It, especially like in Ireland, I th- I think there's a real correlation between Ireland, the Ireland we grew up in, and the Baltimore. You know that that was referred to in the documentary. I can see a lot of correlation between the two, and the Baltimore was the first, um, Catholic diocese in the United States, yeah. as far as I'm aware. Yeah. So like, OG. there was a lot, and I think probably a lot of you know, um, Irish families settled over there. Like there was definitely like I, c- I could relate to a lot of what I heard. Yeah. Um, Similarly, in Poland as well, I think it's like the Catholic tradition. Yeah, brings with it the the misery and the white potatoes. But the, but the problem the, with that is that the then where you have like that kind of a a hold over a community and um, or a state, uh, you also have this kind of like reverence, you know. And the fact of the matter is, they are humans, and it's open to. People who are smart and are like, you know, hey, I like actually having sex with kids. What are good professions for that? You know, wh- what would give me ease of access? Boy Scouts, swim instructor, priest. You know, gymnastics. Gymnastics, bank. OBGYN. Yeah. There you go. Like there's a lot of um, what we would now consider red flags, but we only know they're red flags because we've learned from horrendous experience. Yeah. Um, so... I think they were they were looked at like you couldn't touch they were untouchable. They could touch you, especially if you were a child. Yeah. And you weren't to tell anybody, but you, but they couldn't be touched, apparently. So, um yeah, I think the power that they had then is not to be dismissed. Or um, underestimated. Or underestimated, yeah. The power that they still have. But like look at it's the it's the old that Louis C. K. bit from SNL that we were like biting through the bones and our knuckles laughing about. Because it was so, <laughs> like, what? These lips on SNL going on about paedophiles being like, like, can you imagine, can you imagine, like, paedophilia, like, is one of the worst things to be accused of. And to be labeled a paedophile is, like, the worst thing that anyone can ever have. Like, it ruins your life. You can't go anywhere. You can't ever get a job. You can't do anything. Like, and still, these people go to these crazy lengths, like, unbelievable situations organization like communities online you know all the organization that comes to get to have sex with a child and the threat of going to jail like for a really long time and being labeled and like all that stuff like you must imagine like it must be really good like to go through all of that do you know and that and that joke would make you think like I don't find that joke funny. I, you do. You're laughing. Like I don't. I like, can't believe that's where you were going. I have no idea where you're going. This is what this is what the Louis C.K. joke did for me. Yeah, it shows that like there's nothing going to stop these these motherfuckers. Like there's yeah. nothing going to stop them. Like they enjoy it. But so also, much. there's nothing going to stop them, and they make sure that they're in enough power yeah. that there is literally nothing going to stop. Yeah, them. but that's the thing. So like they want to do it so much that they're willing to like. Get into suit, like work so hard to get into these positions of power, go to a seminary for like seven, eight years, like t- do what, like a, a master's in theology, like yeah. all of this stuff just to get at kids. Now, I know Louis' joke about it, it must be brilliant. That's just like the thing that makes you go, like, oh, Jesus, like, 
but but that's yeah. comedy's purpose yeah is to put that thing in you to remind you to like twist your brain into a way to be like oh yeah fucking hell like they do do that like they 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 so deeply I, I, inject themselves into these communities and become so trusted and act in a way like daily to the parent like they groom the parents mm. they groom the whole community but around me, them like. but but that just proves the point that it's not actually about sex anyway yeah. so that joke is kind of moot to me I, because I, I, I know but that's what i mean it's yeah, not because it's it's about them conning yeah. like they're the biggest con men out there yeah. and it's about I am so like it's to me. It's like if you have a murder, like a murderer knows that they're gone forever, or that supposedly that they're they're put away for life yeah. if they just if they get caught. But they're going, yeah, but like it's I can, ca- yeah, because like not only do I get to do what I want to do, yeah. but also police are stupid and I'm going to get away with it because I'm so smart. Yeah. So you can imagine how smart this guy Maskell thought he was. Yeah. Like because he was constantly on a daily basis. Uh, innumerable times a day he was getting away with stuff in broad daylight uh, we're getting into it yeah. too deep but in broad daylight like so publicly yeah. involved with so many people and anyone in any moment could like upset the apple cart and the whole ring gets busted like but everyone keeps it quiet because like it's it's that important to them yeah that's how deeply we have to think about this episode and the information they're in. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we can't go as deep as, say, Gemma Hoskins does with, uh, what was the name of that podcast we've been listening over the last couple of days? Foul Play. Yeah, it's, I, I'd highly recommend it. Really, really good uh, when it comes to this case. We didn't listen, I didn't, I don't, I didn't listen to any of the other episodes in any other cases, but they have, I think, almost 60 episodes about this particular case, Sister Cathy Sesnick and The Keepers. And they have interviews with, like, ex-FBI agents, whistleblowers. Uh, we'll talk later on about Christian Richter, the gynecologist. To have, he, He's now dead, but his his uh, assistant was on one of the episodes. Uh, they have, like, police that were involved uh, at the time. They have, like, ex-priests. They have psychological profilers from FBI. They have people who were working on um, certain government programs and stuff. We'll talk about later as well coming up. Like, mind-boggling the amount of stuff that they have on this show about this particular case. I think it's probably the seminal work because it has Gemma Hoskins involved, who's one of the yeah. people who's... Um, I love just hearing her voice again. Yeah, she's class, <laughs> man. She's really class. And she's dead. We're going to talk about her in a sec, but she's yeah. dedicated her, her whole, the whole like last third of her life is to, mm. to, to solving Sister Cathy's murder. But yeah, so so we watched it in 2017. We mm. watched it again recently. Mm. Um, is there any differences that you can feel between the first watch and this watch that like... Because when we were watching it first, like 2017, uh, we weren't planning on doing it as an episode, but when we watched it... No. And also... I was like, got to do this for those conspiracy guys. But it took four years to fucking get back around to yeah. it. Like, it was crazy. Yeah. yeah, there were a few things. I think the first time I watched it, because I thought it was going to be, as I said it, because I thought it was going to be like a true crime murder. Yeah. Um, You know, did they find the killer in the end? Kind of a thing. Then the horrendous abuse that came out. That's what stuck with me. The the abuse and the blatant um, abuse of power and the abuse of children that was just allowed to happen. And then the thing that I would consider and really, 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 you know, I'm, I was raised Catholic and did a lot of stuff through my local church. Mm. Like a lot of singing, a lot of praying. Sure. You know, 
Sure wasn't a Christmas in Bunny Condon until Claire Fox was singing <laughs> a holy stop. night. Huh? Um, I said stop. <laughs> give, us bar, give us a bar of it towards the um, end. But, you know, and it makes you realise as well, like there's two sides of it. So there's the community that I think Jean and her family yeah. were very much part of and that real community um, thing that we were taught that that's, you know, a huge part of being Catholic. And, um, and then there's the other side of it, which is the business of the Catholic Church. And it's like, it's like a corporate, um, you know, business that, that it is now, is you know, if you look at it like the Catholic Church as Big Pharma, then like, or, uh, you know, as one a massive pharmaceutical company, and somebody's going to say, oh, your, <laughs> you know, medicine in, caused me cancer. In the name of the Pfizer. <laughs> and your medicine, you know, made me get cancer. And then some other people are coming, and they were like, well, you're the only person saying that. Well, we've got other people yeah. saying it. Well, how can we shut you up so that we don't lose any money? And to me, that's what the Catholic Church was doing. It they had a corporate hierarchical structure. They so weren't with protecting your priests and your monsignors and your cardinals and your bishops and your. They weren't in ever ever following their own ideology. Standard, standard operating procedures. Yeah, yeah at yeah. any point. <laughs> yeah. They all they were going was like, how can we shut these people up? How can we minimize the spend? You know, it was never about anything that they claim that they proclaim, which is Jesus. You know. Uh, you know, like just be sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I don't even have to start listing off the Ten Commandments. Just be sound, people. Yeah. Um, treat others as you would like to be treated, and you'll be grand. The Catholic Church didn't treat, didn't act like that in this, in any this instance or any of the other instances I've heard of. Mm. It was pretty minimize, minimize, hide under the carpet, move the priest. Um. It's just uh, horrendous. So in getting back, sorry, it's a long-winded point, but that's what stuck with me the first time. And it really made me question how much of what I practised, and, and I use the word practice, you know, very um, intentionally, how much of what I practised was habitual and how much of it was faith yeah. and how much of it was, that's just what you do. You the shit is put into you, like... As a basic like operating system, and you end up doing it's, shit automatically. It's spread from, into you, yeah, and from when and like child. it really, really, really rocked me. So the first twenty seventeen viewing, it rocked me as a Catholic. Yeah. I have to say, and it made me go, "Do I even believe in what?" It's very hard to subscribe to something <clears throat> when you find out that the higher ups aren't actually aren't in any way subscribing to what they're, pre- you know, preaching. Yeah, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And it rocked me in that way. But this time, watching it, you know, I think I had, I, I think I could only take in so much in the first few, first time we watched it. You were, you were working in a school as well with people who were, you know, at risk youth mm. and were going through not similar situations, but at least like kind of abuse adjacent, if not direct abuse, um, from a, an underprivileged background. Let's say I don't want to. You don't name in, names or name places, but different like. um, jobs that I'd had, I had worked with different young people who had been taken advantage of in many forms, and yeah, it was very upsetting. Like it was hard for you even to watch any kind of a yeah a movie or a TV show or a documentary that had that kind of content. Yeah, and like I was doing it for a job, so I was like, "Hey, Claire, do you want to watch this thing?" And we clicked onto the keepers, and I was like, "Oh, let's watch this. It's about a nun that gets killed." And you were like, mm, "Yeah, go on then." And then just slowly but surely, mm. it cre- 
It was like, and I, I don't know if you told that. It was like one time when I was like, hey, do you want to watch a movie when oh we God. first started going out? I don't know if we ever did it. I don't know if we told anybody. We were watching a movie when we first started going out. I was like, hey, Claire, come on, what, let's watch this like really good Robin Williams. I love Robin Williams. And it was a movie I hadn't seen. Turned out to be World's Greatest Dad, which uh, is a movie about Robin Williams being a teacher and his son, who's a little prick, uh, can ac- I, can I accidentally kills himself, choke-wanking himself. Can I interrupt and say that um, Gordo told me we were going to watch a film that would... We were going to a couple of months. Like, like a weepy, yeah. a Kleenex movie. Now, a, a cry to wank. me, a Kleenex movie is like... Nothing to do with wanking. But a cry wank, like a woman needs to have an old cry. It's to me it's like watching something like Steel Magnolias. And the graveside scene with Sally Fears and you have your cry and you needed a cry and that was a way to get the tears out. And then (laughs) makes the tears come out. You you wanna have watch something that makes liquid come out of your body. Anyway, Gordo put on World's Greatest World's Greatest Dad, Dad and Robin Williams. And it was Awful. And then he wanted to cheer me up by putting on Requiem for a Dream. Well, that was the follow-up. That was the... So I don't watch movies generally that Gordo suggests, particularly when I'm upset and I need to cry. Because I'm like, no, I think it's I'm afraid of whatever you're going to put on. It's like, hey, do you want to watch a movie that'll make me cry? Yeah. <laughs> that was really a telling of my character at the time. Anyway. But yeah. I think, um, yeah. Yeah. A cry wank. Chalk it down. So yeah. The Keepers, when I watched it first, I was like, yeah. Totally get it. This is, yeah, par for the course. Uh, I grew up in Wexford and sure look it. Yeah. It's where they grow paedophile priests. And I don't know, man, like, what do you, what do you say when you watch something like that and you're like, oh, shit, it happened. Like Baltimore had the same thing and we watched uh, Spotlight and it had the yeah, same kind of stuff yeah. about, um, uh, I think it was Pennsylvania. Was it, or Boston? Was it Massachusetts? It was, I thought it was Boston. Might have been Massachusetts. And, Similar, I like you know, pseudo Irish Catholic pastiche religion centered there where there's loads of bishops and pedo priests and they're all being shuffled around and moved around and it's all being hidden. But like it was the thing at the time in the eighties and nineties for the the Vatican after Vatican Two, where there was you know priests coming in thinking yeah well look at there was a whole uh, uh, recruitment drive in the eighties all through the schools to get young lads into the priesthood and it's Vatican Two now lads we're good. Vatican two, pray harder. We're coming at you uh, with the new eighties vibes. All the priests in shell suits and all the old dogma and the Latin's gone. And you know we're saying the new prayers and here's the new homily and the new all this all the new stuff is all um, making the church cool again. Trying to up the numbers and had a bunch of people coming in and and pointing out improprieties and pointing out like as you would with a, a, any corporation, as Claire said. When you have a corporation and you get a bunch of new employees and they kind of go like, well, the, the, the corporate structure and the atmosphere in here is not, you know, uh, lending to a, a comfortable working environment because it is a job too. And they're like, no, fuck this, man. And started reporting people. And all these reports started flying out in the late 80s and early 90s and empowered by the public um, notoriety of these reports, other victims from past abuses in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s all started coming forward, and, and then in the early 90s it came to a head where there was so many claims against the Catholic Church that they needed to shut it down. They needed to be like, put these fires out, make these yeah. people go away, started paying off people in settlements all over with uh, the tidings of the Catholic parishioners. So you were giving money to the priests uh, to, you know, be... Yeah, be that, 
grinds my gears. Yeah, like you're giving money to the priests on a Sunday to be um, given back out to people that they fucked as children. Like, uh, oh, what kind of fucking weird business model is that? So, look at, uh, we watched it again now in mind of the episode being recorded mm. and the details that I think we were, it was almost like a, a too much water into a sponge of sorrow. The sponge of sorrow mm. was sodden with the uh, with the, the liquid of, of tragedy and we fucking... Didn't take in, I think, half the stuff because we were watching it the second time last week and the two of us, like, having to pause and look at each other and take a foot. Just one of these, like, lift your glasses up and squeeze the bridge of your nose moments. like. And I don't even wear glasses. Yeah, she was doing that the whole time. No glasses at all. And we did that, I think, three or four times an episode. Yeah. Watching poor old Jean breaking down crying or watching... watching we're talking the about sister, at the end. like, Kathy's sister. I had completely forgotten yeah, about... Yeah, all of that stuff. The, oh, the, the necklace and the all. like there was so much so much little details yeah so so like i'm saying before we get into the into the weeds on yeah. this one this episode is going to rock your socks if you've been in any situations like that and you think you might be triggered don't listen because mm. it's going to be weird yeah but also this is uh, like unless we had 50 hours we couldn't do the definitive version of this this is the broad strokes some of the finer details some of the more interesting details from my point of view especially to a those conspiracy guys audience and um, if you want more, there is Foul Play, the podcast. Um, I hope to get Gemma Hoskins on to do an interview in the in the in the future at some stage, uh, because she seems to be quite you know media facing and happy enough to talk to people. I've seen her on lots of different um, uh, podcasts and stuff on YouTube, and there's loads of stuff on the Reddit on the subreddit for this. The keepers, loads of people putting out their theories, finding little bits and bobs, and like. Um, Articles in the Baltimore Sun, like tra- traips and back through digitized versions of newspapers from the time in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, finding little tidbits of information, trying to solve this crime. And it's such an intriguer. It's such a, a, a you know, suck you down into the depths. But on the whole, paedophile priests romping through Baltimore um, and and the, the, the white part of the boil it showed itself on the skin of that city was the death of Sister Cathy Sesnick. Yeah. That ended up uncovering an awful lot of stuff. Mm. Uh, but it took 20 years or 25 years to be And to be so unraveled. much of it hasn't been dealt with. Like, it's Still. not even... Still hasn't been dealt with. It's not even begin... Like, uh, you know, like if you're talking about the white part of the boil, that boil is like, it's in in there. It's deep. Yeah. It's one of the ones you get before you have to go on a big date. Yeah. It's fucked up, man. Um, You can get... All the stuff to do with this episode on the new Gilded server, if you want to go and check out there. I'll be putting up little forum posts and stuff. It's like a souped-up Discord. You can check that out. There'll also be a video version of this. You can watch it on Patreon. If you want to support us on Patreon, the links are in the description below. There's a magic link that has all the links in it. I'm not going to call out all the shit. Uh, we're on all the social medias, and we're on some ones that we're, we've been kicked off some, and we're on others. And it's an ever-changing uh, um, sandy beach of censorship and not allowedness because of this fucking Joe Rogan lad wherever he came from uh, shit's going down and people are being put off places and we have to move to other places so wherever we are now you'll find it in the link in the description below and uh, I'd love to talk with you about this so we're going to do live chats and hopefully be able to get an interview I said with, with some of the people involved and you know throw some of our theories out so if you have your own theories after listening to the show watching the documentary 
reading through the subreddit or any of the articles. There's loads and loads and loads of stuff online about this one. Uh, we're going to go through as much as we can in our time today. Um, but yeah, if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash those conspiracy guys. Uh, throw a couple of bucks up and you can watch the video version of this. And our lovely smiling faces. So, The Keepers, 2017 documentary on Netflix. You can watch it. It was the first foray, for most of us anyway, into the very mysterious and as yet unsolved death of a nun, Sister Kathy Sesnick, in the winter of 1969. The documentary follows two former students of Kathy, Gemma Hoskins and Abby Fitzgerald Schaub, and their misadventures investigating this case, even after all the law enforcement reach and proper channels of justice have been exhausted. These two women are... Rock stars. R- like... Uh, Angela uh, Angela Lansbury's mixed in with uh, the the Father Dowling mysteries, like mixed in with. Uh, I don't know if I'd be using Father Dowling as well, Father Dowling, like a <laughs> like a you know uh, somebody who was or Cagney and Lacey. Cagney and Lacey mixed with Angela Lansbury mixed with diagnosis yeah. murder. Um, these two rock star bitches, not the kicking down doors. Asking questions, but in a super nice, and sound granny way, but also with a bit of a bulldog bite, with a bit of a fucking, I'll ask you real nice, but if you fuck with me, like, yeah. well, I like the, the balance between them. Like Abby was, you know, like she would super say, sweet. you know, I don't like talking to people. Yeah. I don't like, I love research. And she was the real, like, she was like a dog with a bone with <laughs> research. She's like that one from, uh, is it CSI or NCIS? With that has like the very severe black fringe with the black thing, and she's all like, Oh, we need to get the files. She's like, One second, I got him, I'm in. Like, she's the hacker or stuff like that. She goes to the library, she gets all, she's like, yeah. I know where to find this. And she has a lovely little smile and little granny glasses. And she just like goes into the library and says, Hmm, I need these files. Like, whatever's going on in her head, she has the whole case, all the people, all the names, like in some kind of rain man orientation. So she knows exactly where to go for what. Mm. Unbelievable, but like superstar is Gemma Hoskins. Yeah, like she's a bad bitch, isn't she? <laughs> well, I just think she has, you know, she has a passion for it, and she's not afraid. Like I relate to Abby, like I'd be much more safe, um, in the research than I would be going around talking to people. But like I, I really respect, um, the way Abby just like she's she's no problem going right, okay, and like when somebody's like whole body language is like go away yeah yeah and she's just like yeah so come here did you have anything to do with her murder and like she just doesn't give a shit like and i'm yeah i'm impressed with her i'm impressed with both of them they're like the amount of work they've done in a way it would make you sick because you're like talk about showing the police (laughs) police didn't want to know yeah they didn't want to know because you know like even to get as much information as they've gleaned how many years later? Like, it wasn't like she died and then they immediately went out and started investigating. Yeah, like some super sleuths. You know, like, this is 50 years later. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Um, In, in, in the, the podcast file play, I, I'm sorry I don't remember the man's name. I think it's the Shane-inator. Is it Shane? Shane is his name, yeah. Shane, Shane-inator, anyway. He's a very Jenna, cool, deep voice. Very cool. And it's a lot of processing on that voice. Very uh, Howard Sterney. But um, I think basically the... Organi- as far as I understood, the organization is like Gemma wants a podcast to be able to like reach out to these people, oh, okay. and he's kind of facilitating that. Now it's not a keeper's podcast as such. No, 
But uh, they do, like like I said, about 60 episodes. And she goes on it. And they get these mad guests, like, who yeah. are reaching out. And she fucking grills them. Now, when I mean grilling, I'm talking about, like, fucking pitmaster barbecue, like, feet to the fire motherfucker. Like, mm. she is hitting them hard. And some of them don't really want to answer. They're saying stuff they don't even know. Ah, the stuff's out of their mouth before they even know what they've said. And I'm like, man, she's so good. Well, she's doing it for so long. And in the documentary, she reminded me of um, Kate Winslet's character in Mayor of Easttown. Yeah. That kind of like yeah. tenacious, almost like run down, but kind of like nothing never, to lose. Never given up, nothing to lose, truth yeah. hunter, like who doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. And there's nothing more dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as we go along here, we'll find that the, there's, a, th- there's an awful lot of people who were, even after the deaths of the, the bad guys involved, Still just very afraid to even broach the subject in conversation, never mind yeah. going digging and investigating. Yeah. For fear of their own life. I think Gemma Hoskins is just like, do you know? Um, I heard her say in, in one podcast, I haven't received that many death threats. <laughs> like yeah. It was like, eh. But once you, you know. decide that that's your life, yeah. like, a, like a Julian Assange or a Snowden or somebody like that, mm. not that maybe Snowden is a CIA plant, but like I think she's just decided, you know what, fuck it, is this or, or die? Mm-hmm. And like it's it's massively admirable. Uh, uh, if you do nothing else, um, watch the documentary to see her in action. Yeah. If you don't follow up on any of the rest of it, so uh, Schaub and Hoskins use their connections, including the seem seemingly <laughs> oversimplified Facebook network of former students, mm. to ask if anyone had any memories of that time in 1969 at their high school called Archbishop Kyo in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, many students declared their love for Sister Kathy. Although they had no concrete evidence or anything of uh, prosecutable value in a, in a court case, let's say, they offered their gracious support mm. and uh, gave any information that they did have. Some of it helped. Some of it led to other, you know, witnesses. And uh, these two former students, his sister Kathy, came forward and told Gemma and Abby their real identities. And then this investigation threw up this dark web of sinister, disgusting and inhuman sexual depravity psychological torture and manipulation of children and adults alike in the form of the potential murder of Sister Cathy mm. and the murderer and chaplain. Well, potential of, murderer. Well, potential murderer. Alleged. Archbishop. Well, he's dead, so you can say it. Fuck it. There's no <laughs> defamation of the dead. Yeah, but we don't um, know if he murdered. No, I don't think he did, but yeah. that's off the fence spoiler. Yeah. Um, but he was the chaplain and potential, at least, co-conspirator in the murder yeah. of Sister Cathy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Father Joseph Maskell, who was the chaplain of their high school, like it very quickly. The documentary goes, takes a fucking mad left turn out of like, yeah, a dead nun, a body found, mm. a giant pedophile network stretching across nations, mm. continents. Like, you're like, uh oh, like it very quickly got very out of hand. Um, but the whole thing hinges then on the death of Sister Cathy Sesnick, yes. who by all accounts was the loveliest woman yeah. that Grace God's earth. This episode is brought to you by our fantastic sponsor, Factor. Factor is a delicious, easy to prepare, ready to eat meal service and takes all the messing out of making nutritious and tasty meals at home. Forget about the shopping for those hard to find ingredients and weirdly specific vegetables. I'm looking at you, Wambok. Some weird Chinese cabbage. And instead, get these chef-crafted, great-tasting meals delivered right to your door with over 35 meals a week to choose from. 
Thanks to Factor for supporting the show. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Head to factormeals.com slash TCG50 and use the code TCG50 to get 50% off. I already have all my meals picked out for for what Factor is available outside the US, like the Gorgonzola Butter Filet Mignon with a brown butter Yukon mash and broccolini and mushrooms. Excuse me, I just had to wipe myself. But for you lucky Americans, you can get them now. These meals are ready to eat in just two minutes and are dietitian approved, so you can be sure you're getting quality and flavour, as well as your choice of more than 35 recipes. With no prep, no mess, and a flexible ordering plan, Factor is the perfect solution for sustaining yourself. Because, as well as full meals, there are snacks, breakfast foods, smoothies, and more for a full fridge of fancy Factor fare. So head to factormeals.com slash TCG50 and use code TCG50 to get 50% off. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. So Claire, maybe you can give us a little bit of a bit of background and the story of the death of Sister Kathy. Yeah, Sister Kathy was born in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania in nineteen forty two. So she was either twenty six or twenty seven when she was murdered. We actually don't know what ver- yeah. you know, the exact date. So and her birthday was fairly close to when she was um she went missing. So she like they didn't nobody knew she was murdered until her body showed up. Yeah, she her birthday is November dead. 17th and she went missing November 7th. Yeah. So, I mean, whether she was kept alive for 10 days and then killed, like, yeah, like so the worst case scenario, but... We'll say 26 or 27. Yeah. Um, She joined the Sacred Sisters of Notre Dame. So, you'd often see it written as SSND, yeah. um, the religious order, when she had turned 18 and she felt her whole life was a calling to the cloth. Um, From her younger sister's accounts of her, she definitely seemed to have that real... Um, you know, gracious, almost saint-like personality. Um, just really, 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 uh, just seeing the good in everybody. And um, so she felt like she had a vocation from when she was a very young age. Um, but what it se- it seems to me like um, she, you know, saw the realities of life. So, like, say the. The ideal would the idealistic part of her would have had this vocation to changing the lives of young people through education and um or like in Sister Act two song yeah la 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 yeah. la which fixes so, inner city yeah, uh, we all know poverty that, and turmoil that's magic la 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 magic combination of music and um yeah. you know tidying up like an old classroom and tuning the piano that's tune the piano and teach yeah. me to say yeah I'm a god yeah you know me it's poverty yeah you know me you got crack cocaine you know me everybody sing that's what that's how that's how you get out of um a cycle of systemic racial oppression is just like uh, old doo-wop songs with Jesus in the name instead of the man. The I think I think this the the extent of your sarcasm is going a bit. Hey, everybody, sing! Okay, John, join the chorus. So I'm going to go on. So in the first semester of um the new year, the new academic year, autumn 1969, Sister Kathy was teaching in a public school called Western High in Baltimore. 
she had been teaching in um, Archbishop Keogh mm-hmm. up to this point. So basically, like, they broke up for the summer and then Sister Kathy hadn't returned. Yeah. Um, and now she was teaching in uh, a public school in Baltimore. So there's some controversy about whether or not she actually removed herself from the whole holy order fully or whether she took like a break yeah you know there's different accounts i've heard um but we'll say she wasn't she she had yet to take her final vows and yeah she was on her she was on her and she was renting an apartment that had nothing to do with the ssnd she had nothing that nothing to do with the sisters of Notre Dame. She was on her provisional license, and she was going to go yeah. in for the full. The she full hadn't license. gone for the full test yet. What What they do is, uh, and and this is this is confirmed by uh, a man we'll talk about later on called Jerry Coob, who's a uh, a kind of a, a priestly man, and he was a priest at the time, and it was supposedly in some kind of a at least an emotional, if not sexual, congress with Sister Kathy. And we think that the shit that went down in Archbishop Keogh in 1969, coming up to the, st- the start of the, the summer, like the end of the school year, meant that over the summer, some decisions were made. Mm. And she didn't go back to Archbishop Keogh in the September when the new semester started, that she threw off her robes and went in, what would you say, bareback into... A civilian clothes. I civilian think. clothes. Yeah, bareback <laughs> is without condoms. That's weird. Yeah, thing. Yeah. So she went in. She went into a, a public school bareback and said, um, "It was kind of." I, I was reading today. It was kind of uh, classed as a, a nun's rumspringer, where they get to before they lock in to right, the final vows. So she had taken her temporary vows and uh, like the chastity. But a lot of nuns wouldn't do that. A lot of nuns wouldn't, but it, it is an option to do. Right. Okay. And this was kind of this experimental again. I, I wasn't joking about the sister acting. Like, this literally is, you know, a sister act. Like, let's do outreach. Let's yeah. um, get out into the community. And Western High wasn't exactly, you know, a tip-top, yeah. uh, fantastic other, education uh, Yeah, uh, other accounts would say, people who had spoken to her at that time w- would say that um, she had an issue with like she didn't feel that that the job she was doing in Keogh was meeting her vocation, yeah, her, her vocational calling. And apparently, she was also doubtful if she wanted to become a full nun. Yeah, according to Jerry Coob, who was also had the hots for her, who also was about to leave the priesthood himself to go and be with her because he was in love with her and he proposed to her. Was will I wouldn't say he was about to. He was willing. He was willing. He had proposed to her and she hadn't. Uh, he said she turned him down. She turned him down, but yet ended up taking off the cloth and going into a public high school and all but quitting yeah. uh, the nun the nunhood. Well, she was still only 26, about to turn yeah. 27. So, like, I can imagine that she had a lot to think about. Can you imagine? Yeah. So Jerry, be, I, Jerry be annoyed. That's like Jim and Pam in the office. Like, you're like, yeah. I love you. Oh, well. Well, I can't be with you. Why? I'm going to be with Roy. And Roy is like, you know, Jesus. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, she Jerry. She Roy anyway. Jerry goes off and she doesn't get married to Roy anyway. And you're like, well, what the fuck is the point? Yeah. And then, and then Pam exactly gets. exactly the same. And then Pam gets murdered by a priest because there's like a, a pedophile network in Scranton or something like that. I don't know. That's what happened. Please don't ruin the office for me. Sorry, sorry. 
The night Cathy went missing, it was November 7th, 1969. As Gordo said, it was 10 days before her 27th birthday. Um, she left her apartment to do some grocery shopping. She was headed for a local mall or shopping centre that was kind of referred to as quite upmarket. Yeah. Um, she had told Sister Russell, who she shared a two-bedroom apartment with, who was also kind of taking that time out and, and also was working in the same high school, the Western High in Baltimore, um, I didn't check. Did Sister Russell work in Archbishop Keogh as well? She had, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. So the two of them left together. Yeah. yeah, that was a weird thing. Yeah. Like the two of them kind of knew maybe what was going on. and Yeah. Anyway, spoiler alert. Anyway, so she had said to Sister Russell and um, some people at work that she was getting um, picking up a gift for her uh, sister who had just gotten engaged um, in Edmondson Village. Um, so she was to pick up some gift and, you know, there was a trail of her movements up until a certain point and then she had disappeared. So she did cash a paycheck at First National Bank. Um, she bought buns at Muley's Bakery at the shopping village and then presumably uh, collected a necklace from the jewellers that she had planned to pick up. Hecht's Jewellers, it was called. And yeah. someone went to investigate that later on. All of those places, receipts were looked for. Uh, there was no CCTV, obviously, because it's 1969, but there was receipts. There was, you know, uh, purchases made, trying to match up the times when these purchases... Uh, I guess at the time, you know, you're putting into tills. You wouldn't yeah. have, like, this sophisticated till system you have now. No. There was people writing down, like, um, writing down, like, transactions in some kind of a notebook or some kind of a ledger. And, uh, I mean, would times be put near that? No. It was a quite no, a hard but at time the same time, if you're running a jeweler's in, you would you would remember. I think you would remember yeah. um, a very nun like you know, you would like. It sounds like she had a um, an impact on people that yeah. she interacted with, and if she was looking for a gift for her sister and describing exactly what she wanted, which is what was suggested, yeah. um, on a November evening in in 1969, I th- I think you would remember. I, d- I wouldn't would. say they'd be overrun with customers. I'll put it that way. This is it. Yeah. Especially for a custom piece of jewellery. Yeah. From a saintly But like lady. If, if you, so her her sister Kathy went missing that night. So like to me, if I was in that jewellers and I found out the next day that that person that was my customer was missing. And they showed me a photograph because it was on I w- the news. I would like, think, Whoa. yeah, I would definitely remember she was in my shop or not. Um, anyways, we'll come to the police investigation. Yeah. So her car was found. It was parked at an odd angle on North Bend Road. The arse of the car was hanging out on the road and the front wheels were just tipped up over the curve, curb of a driveway opposite the apartment complex where she lived. It was a really strange place to put the car. Abandoned. To me, it would say not only abandoned, but abandoned hastily. Yeah. Like it wasn't... Nobody came along and went, here's where I'll leave it. Yeah. You know. It almost wasn't parked. It was almost like someone was was driving it and then just like let it off with the handbrake and wherever yeah. it stopped, they just pulled it up and, and bolted out the door. Yeah, it was strange. Very odd. Um, the photos that show well, show the car was muddy. Um, heard the buns that she'd bought, there, the bread rolls and Muley's Bakery were in the front seat. There were sticks and debris inside and mud and dirt on the pedals and floor of the driver's side. Yeah. Um, the car was found officially at 4.40am but neighbours saw Sister Cathy leave at 8.30 the night that earlier that night and claimed the car was back and parked 
in that weird position two hours later. Yeah, so the car was back at half ten. Yeah. With no sister Cathy. Or was there sister Cathy? We'll get to that later on. Okay. Because maybe she went back into the apartment and sister Russell Phillips is keeping her mouth closed. Well, she's not anymore because she's brown bread, but kept her mouth closed for all those years. Yeah. Did sister Cathy come back? Well, and was the car taken again and driven off somewhere and then brought back? Like, Well, the official line is... Official line. Like, you're going into investigation. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> the official line, according to... Um, the official line, according to Sister Russell, who, you know, reported Cathy missing eventually. Yeah. Um, Was that she never came back from when she went out to get her sister's birthday present. That was the line. Yeah. That was the... Official story that was told, whether or not we believe it. I have a theory. I'm sure you do. Do you want to say it now? No. Okay. So she was officially missing from that time at 4.40 a.m. and the search was on for her, which quickly turned to a search for her body. It would be almost two months before her body was found on January 3rd, 1970, in a landfill by two hunters who just happened upon her corpse. Her body hadn't decomposed much in the two months she was missing. What... Would this be from, like, was it the cold winter weather keeping her corpse from disintegrating? Surely, if she was as open as the pictures from the documentary suggest, then animals would have been eating her. Yeah, like it was... Uh, like she wasn't, was her body wasn't covered, it was only partially closed. Partially closed up on a mound that was very... It wasn't even in, like, a bracken or no, a bush. No, it wasn't or hidden in trees. It was kind of like as if the body was left to be found. At a later date, like, that wasn't where she was dumped immediately after... A murder, I would imagine. I don't think so, but the timeline of that f- fucks my head up. And we can talk about it now yeah. because it's not really, yeah. there's no real part of the investigation. We're talking about um, your man Scannell, Scannell later on, but yeah, it fucks my mind that like her body was found on a kind of a hillock, like a little hill in a dump mm. out in the open, no trees. It wasn't like it was at the bottom of a a ravine or it rolled down a hill or it was in a, a a riverbed that had dried up or a place that had water in it that that kind of recedes over the winter or it wasn't in like a it wasn't buried that had been exposed from a buried state with like alluvial erosion washing away the soil or something like that mm. it was just out in the open on a kind of a a clay hill in the middle of a dump and you wonder how long could a body be out there before like crows would be at it rats yeah. would be at it it was too probably too cold for flies, but we'll talk about maggot gate in a while. Yeah. Even foxes and badgers and all sorts of things like, mm, free meat. Like, they'd be at it and there'd be chunks taken out of her. But she was almost pristine as found two months after her disappearance. Yeah. And cold weather, I don't think, would be enough to, to preserve a body for that length of time without any kind of impediment. So what do you think? Um, do you think that she wasn't killed when she went missing? She wasn't I, killed until later. I think she could have been killed immediately and then like kept somewhere. Like her body was kept somewhere. Like a somewhere. freezer. Possibly a freezer, yeah. Or, or Would that not show up in the autopsy? Yeah, it would, yeah. Yeah. Whatever position she was kept in, like her blood would settle at the lowest point or whatever. So she's kept on her back. If she was if she was folded and kept in a freezer, the blood would settle Yeah. Like in the feet and the arse and the in the back. Mm. And then when she was like thawed out and stretched out and put up on the hill, people be like, "Well, the blood doesn't change from that place where it's settled." So you know, mm. it's very odd the way that she was found two months after she disappeared. Yeah, the only thing that would explain it is that she was kept alive 
and then killed only just before she was found. But then that doesn't make sense with Jean's story. Yeah. Very weird. And and, and I'll talk about that Jean's Jean's yeah. thing later on as well. Yeah. Um anyway, we'll we'll very, I very weird way to find a body. And we'll talk about uh, uh, Lieutenant Scannell. Yeah. Um, it is. There's questions there that it's difficult to answer. Um, was she grabbed on her way back to the apartment? Was she taken coming out of the shopping centre on her way back to her car? Um, student Mary Spence remembers hearing a shout up the street where Sister Kathy's apartment would be. But it's very difficult to know if she did, as you said, if she did go back to the apartment and Sister Russell was terrified to say and had had to come up with a, a different story which yes. was that she never came back from shopping or um, where was she taken and if she was taken say at the shops why wasn't it like made to look like a burglary why was her car left back in that really awkward place if she was taken at the shops Claire as a like a random kidnapping yeah how did that motherfucker know where that she was living yeah right yeah if she was taken at the shops and brought off somewhere and killed. Like, surely they wouldn't be like, where's your address so I can leave your car back? <laughs> That's what I would say. Why wasn't her car made to look like it was stolen? Why was it dropped back? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I was thinking, why, if it was then a revenge for whatever, like, spoiler alert, this is kind of a bit arseways, but why, if her death was related to uncovering the abuse mm. in Archbishop Keogh High School. This was something where she was being watched. She was being followed. Somebody who knew her and knew where she was living came and killed her. Surely if they had killed her, caught her at the shops, or caught her at her house, and driven away with her in the car, dead or alive, like dead because it was like some kind of altercation in her apartment, or alive like kidnapping headlock in the car driving away to kill her off in some other place mm. wherever she was killed and dumped presumably the place where her body was found which is what we're supposed to think yeah why would you bring the car back to her house I don't and risk being seen or found or leaving behind yeah forensic evidence which was left behind obviously it was it was fruitless but like leave behind evidence and muddy footprints and right beside that like so logically then, if Mary Spence, who was a student of Sister Cathy's in yeah. Bishop Keogh, if it was like Sister Cathy came back from the shops and somebody was staking at her house from the Catholic Church to kill her off because she was about to blow the cover off this whole paedophile ring and they nabbed her in, put her in the car and drove her off, killed her and brought her, their car back so it just looked like she disappeared and no one would presume a murder because her car was still at her house she just disappeared one day mm. and they would have enough time to hide the body and do all the stuff um get rid of the murder weapon and cover it up and you know a disappearance is less suspicious than like a full murder but if you're going to disappear why not disappear her car as well like she was afraid she just drove away to another state or burned the car out someplace and say oh someone yeah, robbed her car I often wondered why they didn't just burn the car put, put her body in the car and set fire to the car and do like a yeah. you know a Princess Diana Fiat Uno man job mm. like worst case of suicide I've ever seen like the pressure was on her like why didn't they do all that stuff mm. why would you kill her keep her body for two months dump her on a on a landfill after leaving her car back 
with like monkey sticks and little twig hanging little off twigs the hanging off the fucking yeah. indicator yeah. rod like bonkers shit I have a theory as to why but I'll tell you towards the end okay because we have to learn about the different people involved fucking yeah. bonkers like it's a crazy like imagine coming across that as a copy just be like ugh fuck this yeah too hard do you know <laughs> so the reason this whole thing came to light mm. was because of two women well, many, many women, but these two in particular, Jane Rowe and Jane Doe, also known as Teresa Lancaster and Jean Wainer. I'm going to say Wainer. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sorry if I'm not. That's what I got from the videos I was watching. Did you? They were former students at Archbishop Keogh and they were abused by Father A. Joseph Maskell. They filed a lawsuit against the diocese and the gynecologist Christian Richter, the school sisters of Notre Dame, and William H. Keeler, who was the bishop in Baltimore at the time. Uh, at the time, they were being abused, and then he be, later on he became archbishop and then became cardinal uh, during the early 90s, and uh, he was appointed to the, co- the College of Cardinals in 1994, right in the middle of the uh, court case against Joseph Maskell. So, like, I'll tell you. Um, the case was dismissed, because of the statute of limitations had passed, and the court dismissed uh, Lancaster and Wainer's appeals uh, that, as they claim, repressed memories were enough discovery in the case to warrant a new trial and reopen the case, and that was thrown out of court because apparently repressed memories were poppycock pseudoscience at the time. So at the time of the case, it was it was began in 1990, late 1991, early 1992, they were anonymous at the time and known as Jane Doe and Jane Rowe, and by the time the keepers was made, Jane Wainer had come out and told everyone who she was in order to finally uncover the cloak of secrecy and hidden abuse. These women are now in their 60s and are desperate for justice against the man who abused them. But he's now dead as well, died in 2001, the cunt. So the next set of uh, justice beans they're going to get against the system who allowed their abuse and then covered it up. Uh, potentially, definitely exposing thousands of other children to similar abuse over the following 50 years. Like these... Yeah, the, the these two girls came out at the time and said some shit's going on, and they were like, yeah. "No." And if it had been uncovered properly at the time, and even if it hadn't been, but they uncovered, didn't come out at the time; they came out in the nineties. After yeah, this, this, what I mean, this, what yeah, I mean, yeah, in nineteen ninety two, like there was thirty years yeah. of of abuse in the nineties. Yeah, and if they had, a, they did come out at the time because she, Wayner came out to Sister Kathy and said, "Like this oh, shit's yes. happening." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if that had been properly dealt with at the time, yeah. you're talking about 50 years of Catholic priestly mm. uh, shady shit and sexual abuse happening to thousands and thousands of children all over the world in all sorts of different dioceses and, and um, versions of Catholicism. Like, I know it's one of these things, if you could go back and kill Hitler as a baby type of mind projects, mm. how many people would be still alive, but... This is a real thing. Like, you can't time travel and, and kill Hitler, but you can fucking, you know, give evidence against a paedophile and have and be believed and then have the cunt go to jail and not be promoted and shuffled around his fucking organisation so he'll escape justice, like. Yeah. So the reason neither of these cases went forward, according to Wayner and the documentarians, was that there was no corroborating witnesses to their claims. Wainer was experiencing lost or repressed memories. Through therapy and meditation, she was recovering locked in 
memories of abuse at the hands of Father Maskell. And when she told her lawyers about it, they said, quote, the court needs more than just your memories. We need someone else to come forward with the same account to make it a new trial. The thing is, there was another witness at the time, Jane Rowe, a.k.a. Teresa Lancaster, a fellow student at Archbishop Keogh. Now, Wainer knew by sheer statistical probability that she wasn't the only one that Maskell was abusing at the school. And as she got older and better able to deal with the flooding memories coming back and the shambles of the 90s court proceedings became clear that they were willfully ignoring these uh, extra witnesses so they could bury the case. And she came out um, in 1992 as Jane Doe and said, like, this has happened to me, but she wanted to maintain, obviously, her her secrecy and her privacy uh, against, like, attacks from the Catholic Church as well as all the people that still support the Catholic Church because these, these were the first waves uh, now we all know, like, paedophile priests, like, yeah, it's a fucking, it's a punchline to m- many a hack comedian's jokes, myself included, I guess. But, like... Yeah, at the time, there was no... Sh- nothing. These motherfuckers uh, still had that whole, yeah. like, holier-than-thou, if you excuse the... Is that yeah. a pun, even? If you excuse the terminology. Like, they had the, the support of their... The unwavering support of their communities in denial of mm-hmm. this shit. I remember mm-hmm. the first waves of it coming through in Wexford, and, like, people were like, no. No, they're liars. Those little cons are liars, and you're like, I'm telling you, man. Yeah, why would anybody want to make up that lie? That's what I don't understand. Yeah, but I think it's so heinous to people, and they so didn't see it. If they didn't know about it, they didn't know about it. Yeah. So, so that when it came out, it seemed so improbable to them, yeah. and I think that was an issue, like that. Now we go, yeah, I'm not surprised. It's not that they don't believe it, it's that they, they can't, can't believe, believe it. it. Yeah. That's yeah. a that's a big problem for stuff nowadays, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, I'm not gonna say it, but yep, we all know. Um yeah. Trust the religion. Go on. Of science. I'll go on to the case, I mean. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to talk about. Uh, I'm not so. Shouldn't be the pump. So there was a network set up by Hoskins and Schaub through the documentary proceedings, and all these women got to meet and talk, and were for possibly the first time actually vindicated in their thoughts and memories by a real person sitting opposite them, corroborating their now newly recovered memories. This is what would have happened in 1992 when the original claims went to court, but their attorneys kept them apart on purpose, if you can believe it. They both testified in 1995 in court, but as one came into the courtroom, the other one was forced to leave. And if they saw each other, obviously they would have been able to recognise each other from school because they were in school together for like six years together or five years together, do you know? Mm. You saw someone you were in school with, like at least you'd have a vague, like, what was your one's name again? Like, I you'd don't have... know that they were in Keogh at the same time though. No. There was class of 69 and class of 71, but they weren't in the same class, but they were in the same school. Yeah, but there were a thousand students in that school. Ah, uh, yeah, but you'd know somebody's fucking face from around. Yeah, maybe. Like, if you were, you know, one of a hundred girls being called into Father Maskell's office the whole time, you would have passed each other in the hall at some point. Like, yeah, there's some fucking Yeah, you shit. might know their face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like t- to have them not... The whole point I'm saying is that they were purposefully kept apart by their attorneys should any, like, small inkling of a memory come t- come to them. Like, right. that's the criminal thing. Yeah. Like, that you're like, fuck's sake, these people are supposed to be advocating yeah. for your well-being and they're keeping you apart. Now, I know that later on the church offered some legal and psychological assistance, 
but the lawyers that were involved at the in the 1995 court case with Jane Doe and Jane Roe, like, I couldn't find who those lawyers were and what kind of, I guess, commitments and associations they had to the Catholic Church. Were they provided by the Catholic Church? Were they paid for by somebody, like, as a... I think an there advocate. was an, uh, the, one of the attorneys representing Jean Wayner, as far as I understand, was paid by the Catholic Church, and then they fired that attorney, and yeah. the, and she got her own attorney. Yeah. And that, do you remember the the really cool woman with the southern accent? I can't remember her name. That was her new attorney. Yeah. But Fitz before that, Gerald, I, I she had had here. somebody who was been paid by the church, so it didn't have her interest at heart. Of course, at all. it didn't have her interest yeah. at heart. They offered the church offered to pay for a great lawyer instead of yeah. having like a. Yeah. You know, a public defender or something like uh, the guy in my cousin Vinny who stutters all the time. Obviously, there's the public defenders are seen as kind of shit and overworked and a bit mm. d- disheveled. But like, if you were going in to sue somebody, would you allow that person to provide an attorney for you? I don't think so. But this is what happened. Like, this is the fucking bonkers situation she was in. So there was also a third victim who came forward called Charles Franz, who is in the last episode of the documentary. Mm. Uh, and if uh, allowed to testify at the time would have been a third witness to Maskell's abuse. It turns out there was no serious abuse claim, according to uh, two different websites that I found, from France against Maskell, but he did fondle his balls in a car. Now, first of all, that is abuse. It is abuse, I'm saying. Second, secondly, I would say that... Serious is in 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 That might commas. be the documented. Yes. But Franz, you know... um. He told, his story in that last episode is that he told his friends or other young guys his age to stay away from Maskell. Yeah. And he was, quote unquote, the golden boy. Yes. And this is the thing I couldn't get from the the newspaper report that I read. I was going like, there was a whole relationship that he was having, like Maskell was having with this kid. Yeah. So what was reported, what was written down, it was also at a time before before Maskell was like professionally... A paedophile. He was at a. He yeah. was at Franz's school, and he was working there before he had gone to Archbishop Keogh. Yeah, and this was like he probably learned something from that, because you know he basically threatened Franz, uh, Charles. Sorry, and uh, he threatened him, and then he told his mother, and then the mother. So like maybe what was documented or what's been reported that it was just a, a mere ball fondling or yeah. whatever. Maybe that's all they that that policeman. That was reported to, or that, you know, church member that was reported yeah. to from the mother, but I don't think that that's an account. Like he was a child, that isn't an account of what he was of of the abuse he suffered, and and he went to representatives of the church of the archdiocese as an um, much later on in the nineties, in the early nineties, as the court case was going on with Jane Doe, as Jane the court Rowe. case with Jane Doe and Jane Roe, where where at the same time Jean Wayner was being told you have to find somebody else to corroborate the story, he was corroborating it yeah. with his own accounts of the same accusing the same priest, and then the tr- it was up to the archdiocese who was getting the same name from two different people who didn't know each other in two different dioceses. And they were just like, no, we're, we're not accepting this. So on the one hand, they're telling Gene Wayner, you d- you need to have somebody to corroborate the, the story. But Knowing that... But that Charles Franz was get corroborating the story. And Theresa Lancaster as well was another yeah. one to corroborate. So the point the was time. that they were asking for stuff. They were just... They were never going to do anything about it. No. They didn't do anything about it when Charles Franz went both times to them. 
So he his mother had already gone yeah. years earlier. And now he went to them in the early 90s and so, they still ignored him. As far as I understood, Charles Franz in that last episode gave his yeah. account saying, I have been an alcoholic and a drug addict for a lot of his life. Yes, yeah. But also a qualified dentist. Yeah. A practicing dentist. Yeah. So I mean, smart dude got f- fucking ruined. Yeah. And in 1967, before Maskell had gone to Archbishop Keogh, mm. he was the priest at this other school. Yeah. And he was letting Charles Franz be on all the baseball teams and yeah. captain of all the soccer teams and all the football teams and all the things, getting everything because he was being a good boy and presumably getting riddled to bits. Yeah, he was an altar boy at that stage and lived very close to where Maskell was living. And told his ma, his ma came to the school and said, what's the fucking crack? And without, like, any kind of um, furore or any kind of public outcry, Maskell was gone from the school. Yeah, because no doubt that mother was not the first. Well, I mean, it's the first one to come, f- that, that we know publicly to come forward. And yeah. it's, it's historically Maskell's first accusation. Later on, and I, I found out that Maskell was at it all over the town. Yeah. In primary schools, in like kindergartens from kids as young as three mm. like he was at this fucking bad shit but the first one to get him moved the first one to make enough waves was Charles Franz mm. and he said when he fought back there was a period of time of about a month where his life was made hell by Maskell in the mm. school and then all of a sudden Maskell was gone mm. now the next place he went was Archbishop Keogh and yeah. he was spending half his time there and half his time in another school but like that's when that con should have been stopped. Yeah. Was that first account. But he went into Archbishop Keogh and interfered with dozens, if, uh, not dozens if not hundreds of other girls. There's only six features in the documentary, but there was like 40 all in all. I would say you cannot were, even put a number. I, I don't, yeah, but there was 40 that had come forward and then yeah. since died, like since the beginning of the investigation for the documentary. Yeah. Because these women are all in their 60s. So it just melts my face that the official account from the things that I found were that Charles Franz's official report of abuse was just a bit of ball fondling in a car on a car ride one time. That was the only thing that was written down. Mm. Like how many other times was Maskell doing that stuff to people and not being not, it wasn't deemed serious enough to follow up. And there was a report about Maskell being like very lovey dovey. Mm. So he was always hugging and touching Hugging and touching her and her sisters. Yeah, but that's a grooming mechanism yeah. to normalise it. It's b- boundary testing and yeah. stuff like that. But he was hugging and touching and tickling and, you know, all this kind of stuff with all of these kids yeah. all the time in all these schools from the age of three up. So, like, the fucking writing's on the wall. It's all red flags, like, up and down. Yeah. That's what we know now as red flags. Like, this was fucking Red Flag City. It was like a... a Chinese flag factory right so they were kept apart Franz could have been like the third witness in this court case in 1994 but the archbishop at the time who was on his way to being a cardinal William Keeler and a bunch of other lads from the diocese were in in communication with Charles Franz as Jane Doe and Jane Rose court case was going into court Mm -hmm. it made its way to the Supreme Court in 1995 but in 1994 Charles Franz uh, met with the diocese and Wheeler wasn't there but there was representatives there 
and said Archbishop Reader would, would be here only. Maluli was there. Yeah, yeah, Maluli. That's such an fucking Irish name. Keeler, sorry, Keeler. So Archbishop Keeler, he said, oh, the only Archbishop will be here only. You know, he's, he's very busy, but um, would you like a boat? What's going to make this go away, Charles? Yeah. That's what Maluli said to him. Well, Maluli claims that meeting never took place. I mean, he also claims that he wasn't riddled to bits by a priest up the arse. Yeah. So, you know, who's going to fucking... Yeah. Would you like a boat? That's what they asked him. Mm. And he's like, I don't want a fucking boat. I want this guy, like, mm. done. And they're like, ah, Also, he had a boat. Do you want a boat? He had three boats because he was a fucking dentist. Mm. Um, so, yeah, this is the, the mad thing. That kind of came in as, uh, as a footnote or an addendum in the documentary because, like, Charles Franz, like, came out of nowhere at the in the last yeah. episode and you're like, But they, had, they had so much. S- way more than you need for a court case. No, no, what I was going to say was the documentary makers had hundreds of hours yeah. of film and they had to get it down to seven hours. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can't imagine the decisions of, of stuff they had to leave out. So many, so many interviews. Like, yeah. uh, you could make, you'd make fucking 100 episodes. And they do that in, um, in Foul, in foul play. play. There's like Yeah, there's a couple of stuff, uh, things like where people were filmed for the documentary and they didn't yeah. want, they they changed their minds in the end, like maybe it was going to affect their career. Like, there's still a lot of intimidation and fear around this. Yeah. So, um, Gemma Hoskins um, alluded to it in one of the episodes of Foul Play where, like, you know, we'll come to it later when we're talking about Dr. Reichter, but, um, you know, she just said, like, there were people who were filmed who then made a decision that they didn't want to go on the on the documentary. So I'd say that... This stuff came out in conversation. They were like, oh, geez, I didn't think it would go there. <laughs> yeah. But even I would just say, deciding what went in and what, what didn't go in. But I think the Charles Franz story was very important, given that it really showed how the church were bullshitting because they were saying, oh, yeah. come on, Jean, like, help me help you, Jean. Give me another corroborator. Yeah. Like as if she was an investigator. Like as if she was, a, like she was like, this happened to me. I don't know who else it happened to. And they're like, well then how do we, how are we supposed to do anything with it? And all the while they were saying that, she, they had these people in they the pocket. Ha- they had yeah. Charles Franz saying this happened to me before ever he went to and Theo. And you knew about it and you didn't do anything about it. Very, very, very angry. Oh, it's very frustrating. Like, but yeah. the fact that it, it, it screams cover up. It's yeah. fucking screams cover up. Like, um, so in in, in 1992, then when these memories had properly resurfaced for Wayner, there was a campaign put out through the Baltimore Sun looking for the alumni of Archbishop Keogh High School who had memories of sexual impropriety, and it was also sent directly to graduates that they had on file. Those who received it, including J- uh, um, Theresa Lancaster, Jane Rowe, thought, as she said in the doc. That if she, if she called this number, that somehow they would be the Catholic Church would be able to trace the call, and know that she had told, and that she would be killed, and that was like deeply embedded in her psyche. Maskell was still alive at this stage in ninety three and ninety four, but since the documentary, there's newfound support for the abolition of the statute of limitations on child sex abuse cases in Maryland, uh, because let's face it, like five years that was only recently graciously extended to seven years it's just not enough of a statute of limitations for abuse on a on a child like even if you were 14 when something like that happened to you does that mean that you if you haven't told anybody 
if you haven't not only told anybody, if you haven't reported it and are going to try and press charges by the time you're twenty one, yeah, that's then you're you still don't a child, get to. Basically, like, but that's what my point yeah. is like it. It could take somebody until they're forty one to go. Yeah. Okay, now I'm ready to deal with this. I'm strong enough to go through the shit again. Yeah, yeah. It it's it. I I cannot believe that law. I can't believe it. Yeah, it's bonkers. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Bonkers. Anyway. So, I mean, I'm only guessing, Claire, but the next section is called The Depth of Abuse. And uh, it probably might be easier if I go through it and you yeah. throw in colourful commentary because it's pretty rough. Yeah. So, earmuffs now, guys, if you're, you know, if this is the part where you're like, ah, no thanks. So, when her first repressed memories that came to her in 1981, when she read the book Michelle Remembers, which is a book about satanic ritual abuse, and she began to seek therapy. During this therapy, she began an exercise called dialoguing with the inner child and was interacting with many different personalities in there called Jeannie, Beth, Gloria, Ethel and Martha, among others. So each one of these inner girls held different abuse memories. Now that is typical of disassociative identity disorder due to severe trauma and sexual abuse. Yeah, it's been absolutely like accepted that as a result of trauma, many people... um, disassociate sometimes they create a different character so that they can then move on in their life and say well that happened to mary not to me compartmentalized uh, yeah abuse memories and trauma it's fucked up but we've seen it before and we're going to talk a bit about mk ultra and stuff like that like it definitely is um real now when she was saying it in the 80s it was kind of like oh really that's weird uh, all through the 1980s, she uncovered memories of a group of men who would abuse her, including her uncle and his group of friends, who were strangers to her. This was from age 3 to age 12. And in this, uh, in her child therapy, she remembered her uncle also abused her and her 10 siblings, although none of them remember it at all either. And now you asked me before we started how they got a source for that. And I, it was part of a, um, a, like a news report on Jean Wainer. I mean, if the uncle was abusing all of them, did one of them even remember when the documentary came out? Did they all get re- repressed memories? I couldn't find it out. But uh, Jean It was wasn't referred to in the documentary. No, but I don't think Jean uh, referred to it. Yeah. Maybe if we pour through the episodes of Foul Play, we might find her, because they interview her a couple of different times in a couple of different episodes. But it's very... Uh, like, obviously, you know, if you're a pedo priest... You're looking out for girls who are already abused, and this just Jean just ticked all the maskless boxes, you know. Through the late eighties and into the early nineties, Wayne read books about repressed memories, like *The Courage to Heal*, which is a guide for women who experience childhood sexual abuse and trauma. And then during this awakening in the very early nineties, she worked with psychologist Norman Bradford, who encouraged this inner child work and dream journals. And here, the first memories of Father Neil Magnus came to the front, as detailed in the documentary. She was in the confessional and Father Magnus got her to describe her childhood abuse as he masturbated in the confession box. 
This opened a floodgate to the abuse of Keogh and the memories of Father Maskell and his counselling office all came flooding in. Now, you can watch the documentary and she, from from her own from her own words, like you can, she she's pretty, uh, I think she seems pretty removed, but you would kind of have to be like to describe that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a, I guess it's a tool to be able to tell the story uh, without being like massively overcome with emotion as you're telling it. She seems kind of like aloof about it, but obviously like it's very dark and um, matter of fact. Some people see somebody saying something like that and they're like, ah, yeah, that, that mustn't be affecting them that much. It mustn't be that bad. But also she breaks down several times. Yeah. When it hits her. Like, it's like she says it. I know what you're saying. Do you know what I mean? It's like she says it in a removed way. Yes. And then she hears it. And then. And she realizes that that happened to her. Yeah. And then she gets really upset. But it's people like that that are able to describe it or talk about it in a way that communicates the details of it unemotionally and matter-of-factly that make people who hear it go like, you don't seem that cut up about it. Like, it's, it's you know, it's a weird... Yeah, but people... I, I know, I, I know. I, but and I'm I know, like, I know. People make a decision on how somebody should look when the, something bad happens. Sure. And everybody reacts in different ways to things. So that in itself is a mistake that people make. Yeah, we don't all react to difficult situations in the same way. Like, somebody might laugh when they see somebody drowning because... That's their reaction. It doesn't mean they think it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's a. It's a weird. It's a weird thing to experience to watch her. Yeah. Describing it, but she recalls, uh, and like on camera, like to her, like her face, you can see her face describing it. Like, um, she recalls in the documentary being vaginally and anally raped, uh, sometimes with a vibrator, and being forced to orgasm against her will by Father Maskell, uh, being orally copulated, which is like forced blowjob. And told that the semen was the holy sacrament and was the only thing that would heal her soul from the sin of being a whore. So he'd take her into the office and tell her, like, you're a whore and you have to receive this holy sacrament, like communion. Like, using her Catholic upbringing and background and belief structure against her to, you know, fucking mad. She was also subjected to uh, vaginal and anal enemas. Vaginal douches. He would um, inspect her for menstrual blood, and um, uh, there was documents that were talked about by um, other girls that came forward as witnesses, uh, as well as some photographs that were or video that was uh, inspected later on. That he had documents on his desk that indicated he was tracking different girls' like menstrual cycles, making sure that these girls didn't get pregnant from the sexual abuse that was going on. Um, he was doing a lot of, like, gynecological exams in his office, um, putting them up on the desk and, and checking them and making sure, like, shit, no, like, what the fuck are you doing in a school, in a counsellor's, in a chaplain's office? I think Teresa Lancaster um, described being brought to an OBGYN's office by Dr. Maskell. That's Christian Richter. That's yeah. the guy up the road. But it was, like... There was a hospital not three minutes walk from the fire exit door of his chaplain's office in the school. And within that office, Christian Richter, gynecologist, had like a secret mm. fucking office in the basement that was identical to the office on the ground floor. Mm. And it was like all sorts of exams and even abortions performed. Um, so 
Allegedly. Allegedly, but look at he's dead as well. So that's that's the ship that was coming down, like these women are saying, that's the crack. Mm. <clears throat> Obviously none of it can be hundred percent proven now after the fact, but like what he did do was make them take like vaginal douches to wash out yeah. obviously semen mm. so that they wouldn't become pregnant immediately after abuse. Um, ver- like very fucking sick and weird shit that was going on. Uh, she was, she also claimed that she was being threatened with a gun, threatened to be shot to death if she told anybody and other physical threats of violence. And then the network opened up in her mind of a, a slew of policemen, priests and businessmen that all came into Maskell's office through this fire exit, which is a, 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 a door to the outside that Maskell had. It was one of the only doors apart from the front doors of the school that led to the outside. And it was conveniently located uh, inside of a, a, a parking lot where people could come up and park. They wouldn't be seen from the front of the building. And just up the road was, or just like three minutes walk up a hill, was uh, St. Joseph's Hospital next to... Archbishop Keogh High School. So, like, these people could be coming into park to go visit somebody in the hospital, call into Father Maskell's office, come in through the fire exit, rape a student, and be gone, and back in the car and out, and no one would be any the wiser because visitors to the hospital were using that car park anyway. Like, and his, his in the documentary, they show that the, the blueprints of the, school and where Maskell's office was, was away from any of the other, what would you call it, uh, management or... Faculty. Yeah, faculty or administrative service offices for the rest of the school. It was down by the classrooms and the bathrooms. So, like, why would he choose to have his office down there? It was the only fucking room in the whole place that had an outside door, is why. Yeah, like, talking about red flags now, the fact that that a person who's going to be working one-to-one with students, male or female, like... You know, having been in a role where I worked with students one-to-one, the last thing you want is to be away from other people. Be on your own with them. Yeah, you want to be public. Like, sometimes you have to be on your own with the students, and that's fine, but you want to be as public as you possibly can be. You want windows and doors and glass panes so that you are absolutely not hidden. The last thing you want is to be hidden. That That's scary for a person who is... No, has nothing to hide. Yeah. But it's a red flag for somebody to want to be, to. I have no doubt that he chose his office in that school. I'd say he fought for it. Yeah. To have that fire exit door right next to a car park that no one yeah. could see from the front of the building. Like, yeah. So the only like, way you could see it is if you were at the, at the back of one of the rooms of the hospital. You know, there was no other place to see it from. Like, where, where else would you be out in the middle of a field looking into the car park? Like, no one saw anyone coming or going. To be honest... It's fucking genius. But like, what a cunt. Yeah. So these men that uh, came in and systematically abused uh, Jean Wainer, according to her, facilitated by Father Maskell, included two policemen, three high school teachers, a local politician who practiced his political speeches while she performed oral sex on him, uh, three other priests, Father Schmidt, Father John and and Father Daniels, Four brothers of some religious order that were wearing the the garb. Uh, brother Tim, Brother Frank, Brother Ed, and the infamous Brother Bob. Uh, two nuns. Sister Nancy and a Sister Russell. Now, I don't know, is that the same Sister Russell? I doubt it. 
but that was mentioned by Jean. Uh, and one other religious man she only knew as Mr. Teeth, who used to read from the Book of Psalms while he was having sex with her. So there was also a repressed memory of Jean killing an unidentified nun from her school. Maybe this was an implanted memory. I'll talk about that in a little while. But uh, she she felt the guilt of uh, killing Sister Cathy and even said it in the documentary, like, I killed her. And that's why I couldn't say anything about it because she was afraid she'd go to jail for it. <clears throat> All of this began as a blended memory and grew into specific instances as she went through her therapy. She even remembers one of the policemen being reticent to raping her and being coaxed and instructed and encouraged by Father Maskell. Obviously, Maskell was getting these lads in who were of high society in the area and getting them to do this stuff and, you know, logging it down, writing it down and using it as blackmail against them. Yeah. As is as is the fucking system of control that these pedophile networks have. So Jean yeah. also has a terrible and repressed memory that came to the fore and squarely singled Maskell out as some sort of an accomplice to Sister Cathy's murder, where Maskell led Jean out into some sort of wilderness and showed her Sister Cathy's dead body. And this was sometime before Christmas in 1969, and Jean distinctly remembers Cathy having maggots on her face, and she's frantically trying to wipe them away. This could also be an implanted memory, but mm-hmm. Jean distinctly remembers Maskell saying, this is what happens when you say bad things about people. This is also weird because the cop who found Sister Cathy, one Lieutenant James Scannell, or Scannell, who was featured in the documentary and had failed, as the fella said, <laughs> 79 years of age in the dock. Uh, he's probably brown bread now. I, c- I couldn't find anywhere where he was. He, did, he didn't dead, look he anything fucked. like the picture of him. He no. looked like Blue from... <laughs> he did. He looked like Blue <laughs> from uh, from uh, old school. Old school. But when he was... You're my boy, Blue. <laughs> but when he was uh, retiring, he looked like fucking an older version of Kevin James or something. Yeah. Like he was he failed. He fucking wore out. Up. Yeah. That's what that's what Gil to do for you. Um so Scannell claims that absolutely Sister Cathy had no maggots on her face when she was found and that she was almost like immaculately preserved. Like there was no bites or marks or cuts or there was just like a hole in the side of her head where she was hit with the, the whatever Blunt the thing instrument. that killed her. Yeah. yeah. It was like a, a, a round hole. So mm. obviously it was something with a, a point, like a pipe or some kind of a thing. But um, But her skull was visible. Visible and intact and all that stuff. And her face was perfectly fine. No, but like, as in... The inside of her skull. Yeah. Yeah. But there was no maggots, he said. All right. So I'm wondering... Yeah. Is that an implanted memory, that whole visit to her dead body? Is that something that Maskell did under hypnosis that got Jean all riled up and, like, he brought her to somebody's dead body? Could it have been, possibly, Joyce Malecki's dead body? Could it have been some other woman's dead body? That she was convinced was Sister Cathy and she just... No, I, I don't think so because... She, what do you think about that? First of all, it's the maggots that get it for me, right? Yeah. So people rubbished Jean's memory because of the maggots, yeah. because of the time of year. When in actual fact, um, the the unseasonably warm weather... In November that year. In November that year. Yeah. um, Plus the autopsy... Showing that there were maggots in her esophagus. Esophagus, thank you. Proved that that's true. So, like, I don't think if that was an implanted memory that she would have had the maggots detail. I don't either. But I think it's very odd that Maskell knew where her body was and went and brought her there uh, in November. And then that body stayed untouched by wild animals and all that stuff and perfectly preserved in unseasonably warm weather. 
until the 7th of January when she was found perfectly preserved and like frozen as if she'd been kept in a freezer. Now, was she found perfectly preserved? Yeah, that, that's what Scandal said. And the autopsy, all that stuff, like there was no, there was not none, yeah. any of the outside of her as like, look at, if you're, if you're leaving like a partially warm dead body, like rigor mortis sets in, but it's gone after 10 days. We learned about that in the vampires episode. Yeah. So 10 days, like rigor mortis is like weekend up Arnie shit. Like, yeah. And, you know, you have to have the body lying lying with the arms and legs straight or else it won't go into the coffin. Right. But after 10, 10, to, 10 to 14 days, all of those chemicals all fall away and the bones and the joints all start getting quite loose and you can start manoeuvring it around again. So like she was found as if she was in rigor mortis, but it's because it was so cold in January. She was frozen, but perfectly preserved. So if you had unseasonably warm weather, you would have had like natural organic disintegration of her flesh. Yeah. But also you would have had hungry animals in wintertime when food is scarce going, oh, unfrozen meat that could be delicious. And there wasn't one bite taken over. So like Maskell took Jean to a place where Sister Cathy was. Maybe it wasn't that place where she was found. Maybe it was a different place where her body was stashed. Yeah. But like if it was stashed anywhere that wasn't like a controlled environment in some woods or in a garden or somewhere... Like to be worms, maggots, yeah. uh, you know, a sly fox. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. There's so much fucking weird, like the, the, the logic of it. I'd love to speak to somebody, like Bones. I'd love to talk to Bones well, about You need somebody, and I'm sure, <laughs> well, I didn't go too deep into it, but I'm sure in, in Gemma Hoskins' discovery that she's got some kind of, uh, you know, yeah. forensic pathologist who's like, the only way that can be explained is this. Because for me, that shit is inexplicable. Yeah. That I believe Jean when she said, I, he brought me there, showed me yeah. Sister Cathy. She, she, she couldn't not recognise Sister Cathy. That's what I'm saying, right? yeah, yeah. Maggots in the face. And then the fucking, uh, the old weird Jewish dude. Yeah, the, the, the pathologist. The patho- uh, coroner. The coroner from yeah. like JFK's coroner, Martin Luther King, like the yeah. super famous conscious everywhere. He's like, yeah, so from this uh, document, we can see that uh, definitely vast maggots in the... Esophageal cavity in the nasal pharynx, in the inner mouth, in the soft palate, there was maggots. So there definitely was maggots. So the maggot story holds up, but like, you know, she was poo pooed for 30 years or whatever. Mm. It's just bonkers that like there's two months between that and her finding yeah. her, find her body. Yeah. Like, where does that come in? Where was she? I don't know. Was Maskell hiding? Or maybe her body she or? was frozen in a freezer after that. And we don't know because we haven't seen the. Uh, the autopsy report. I'd love to know exactly what date Jean was brought. She doesn't know, but it was before Christmas, she said. Yeah. I'd love to know what date she was brought to see the body. Me too. Because it was obviously in that unseasonable time in November. Unseasonably warm time. Unseasonably warm November. And Gemma looks through the, you see her in the documentary looking through the weather report of the time. Yeah. I think it was like 8, 9, 10 degrees on the... 10th, 11th, 12th of November. So like in that five days after her disappearance, that could have been when Jean was brought to her. Where was she for two months until she was found? It's fucking crazy. Like something to think about, something to discuss. But that James Scannell, I don't believe. But the important part to to think about is the reason that Jean would feel so guilty or feel that like, oh my God, I, I murdered Sister Cathy, be it an implanted memory or be it like, a real guilt or, you know, the fact that she'd recognise her dead body 
was because like her and Sister Cathy had a very close relationship while Sister Cathy was a teacher in Archbishop Keogh. Yeah. And Jean was seen many times coming out of, uh, 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 as well as many other girls, fucking bewildered coming out of Father Maskell's office, uh, walking through the halls. And there was, you know, the Oprah whisper before Oprah was <clears throat> in the color purple or whatever. Mm. Uh, in them times, Sister Cathy was looking at these girls going, fucking, there's a lot of girls walking around here shook to bits. What's going on? And... Did Cathy approach Jean or did Jean approach Cathy? She was uh, staying after school, speaking to her about something or doing, I I think it was somebody else was playing guitar with her, so it wasn't Jean. Jean was doing something with uh, Sister Cathy and she didn't talk to her about it. Sister Cathy had said in front of Jean, I didn't know you were seeing Jean. I didn't know Jean needed these appointments. That's what it was. The, the Jean, uh, Sister Cathy, kind of confronted Father yes. Maskell at the door of the office. Yeah. As he was and Jean allowing her it. into the office. Yeah. Right. And later, when she had Jean on her own, she said, um, you know, is there anything you want to tell me about anything? And she said, no. And then she said, if I ask you, would you say yes or no? And Jean said, yes. So she said, is it something to do with Father Maskell being inappropriate with you. And she said, yes. And she said, I'm going. They were breaking up for the summer. Yeah. She said, "I'm go enjoy your summer. I'm going to do Take something about this. this. Yeah. Take care of this. And then when Jean came back in September, or came back for the autumn of 1969 to Archbishop Keogh, Sister Cathy wasn't there. She had gone on her own. She'd spring, gone yeah. on to the other school. Yeah. But clearly was, in her mind, I would say, was trying to deal with it. She didn't just leave and go, well, that was tough. I think Sister Cathy had gone to maybe the board of management or yeah. gone to somebody above her and said, come here, listen, uh, the whole year I've been watching girls walking around that school shook to bits. Yeah. And they're all coming out of Father Maskell's office and he's a dirty cunt. And he said, she said it to somebody mm. and somebody went, huh, because that summer her superior picked her and Sister Russell to go on this experiment yeah. to, you know, do a sister act and go yeah. live in an apartment and yeah. live their live their lay their lay life at a at a public high yeah. school. Where they could really get in touch with the young people. Yeah. That was and that get was away the, from Archbishop Keogh. That was the explanation, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That they could really get like some serious work done. This new nineteen sixty nine summer yeah. love youth. Yeah. Like Woodstock had happened, yeah. you know, it was a a big cultural shift. I'm sure Jean felt quite guilty that like this thing had happened before the summer and then you come back expecting somebody of safety like Sister yeah. Cathy to be there and then she's not and you're like, oh fuck. And then there. she goes missing and you're like, oh fuck. Like, but you, well, like, it's like, you know, a child having had a fight with her mother, you yeah. know, and then that mother has a car crash. The child will go, it's my fault she died. Yeah, of course. You know, like to me, Jean thinking she murdered Sister Cathy was very similar. It was like, well, if I hadn't told her, yeah. she wouldn't have gotten into trouble. Because believe- also, Father Meskel told Jean, you know, yeah, this you, is your fault. This you is your this. fault. Yeah, you yeah, told yeah. her. I can't believe we did. We weren't that. I, I wasn't that explicit about that before. Like, good call. Because yeah. I don't think maybe people put it together. In my mind, it was like obvious that that was the case. But no. maybe somebody who hasn't watched the documentary is like, what's the fucking link? Like, why are yes. you talking about this nun? So that's the link. Sorry about that. Uh, anybody that's confused, good call, Claire. But uh, yeah, weird, 
a weird set of circumstances all around that few months. Yeah. Where Jean is like getting ri- like ritually abused by this guy, as yeah. well as dozens, if not hundreds, of other girls in this school over the years. But he was only at that school for two years at that point. Um, and he stayed there for five more, imagine, after Sister Cathy's death till 1975. So, like, he was at it. But Sister Cathy was about to blow the lid off it, and she couldn't be... She couldn't be let, I guess. There are claims that Joseph Maskell was trained in the art of hypnosis by CIA operatives, or at least got his hands on these documents, which were made public only a short time before these crimes took place in the late 60s. Now, this is stuff you wouldn't see in... Uh, the Keeper's documentary. But experiments with LSD and mescaline and fracturing the mind with sexual abuse is indicative of what we know as uh, Operation MK Ultra in the TCG gang. Right. These experiments were being conducted in places of such high academic standard like... Harvard Yard. Harvard Yard. Have you ever heard, <laughs> of, a little, <laughs> heard of a little place called Harvard? Do you remember Ted Kaczynski? Remember that episode? Where did you go to school? Boston. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a contish answer. Um yeah, have You it. know where I went to school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go big red. Um that's Cornell, by the way. Uh remember the Ted Kaczynski episode? He was sixteen and he was gift a child and he got I to do go to Harvard. I do remember that, yeah. And then he was being experimented on by Henry A. Murray in like nineteen fifty eight. They were fucking giving him uh giving him Trivial. LSD and showing him terrible terrible films and making his fucking brain go mental. Like, that's, you know, what do you expect? Uh, maybe Maskell was at that shit as well, armed with the knowledge, armed with these experiments. So these connections to ritual abuse, the fracturing of the psyche, repressing and implanting memories, and the anchoring of sounds and phrases to jerk from the hypnotic state and activate hypnotic suggestion were all present in people like Jean Weiner and uh, Teresa Lancaster. Jean said that she would, quote, snap out of the trance when Maskell would say, clean yourself up and get back to class. Like, maybe that was that hypnotic suggestion of, like, a 3 two, one back in the room. Yeah. You know? Um, and she also said, with the click of the closing door, she would delete the memory of what happened in that room and go on about her day as if in a separate personality. And she said it a few times in the mm-hmm. episode, uh, episode four, when we're talking about that particular stuff. Like, the door would click in a certain way and it'd just be like, like a, you know, a hypnotic suggestion. Uh, this is textbook hypnotic disassociation but can also be indicative of trauma. So when you're very heavily traumatized, uh, it's called complex PTSD. So PTSD will force you to ram the memories down and you, you end up just like becoming numb to that sort of stuff. Um, and it can sit with you for years yeah. and then present itself as you know anxiety or depression later on. And you really have to dig deep to get down to find out why. Uh, it's like going to your happy place or whatever. Like people say, like, you know, it's, it's kind of the joke, like... And stuff like Oz, like lads are getting raped in jail. And it's like, go to your happy place. Just like, w- you know, go where, just don't be here. When it's happening to you, just go go somewhere else in your head mm. and just let it happen. Um, this Freudian school of thought about repressed memories of childhood sexual abuse being the cause for adult issues like sexual misadventure, eating and body image disorders and chronic fatigue and depression was made popular again almost 100 years after its introduction when psychologists of the 1980s tried to find the reasons for their patient's discomfort. Now, this is the thing that kind of hobbled Jean and uh, um, Teresa when they were coming out with their repressed memories testimony. Um, hundreds of these cases were being brought to court in the late 80s and early 90s based on repressed memories. Some were actually implanted there on unsuspecting therapy patients as this psychology craze swept across the nation through uh, 
you know, leading questions and false assumptions by therapists, almost like implanting these, oh, the reason you have this problem is because you were sexually abused and all you have to do is get that memory out of you. You have to come back every day for a year, cha-ching, and it became like a kind of a, a, a psychological or a psychologist fad. Um, this obviously undermined in the Rowan Doe case fairly heavily, and the Court of Appeals threw out the case, stating, quote, the advisories of repression state that there is no empirical scientific evidence to support the claims that repression exists. The studies purporting to validate repression theory are justly criticised as unscientific, unrepresentative, and biased. So, like, the craze of repressed memories, because they're, I, I like, I feel real. Um, yeah, you know, I think Do we it's trust a, the science on that one? I don't know. I think it's widely accepted now that it's now, not yeah. only, you know, like, so you mentioned two things there. You mentioned um, Gene having possibly repressed memories, yeah. but also having been... Uh, under hypnosis and he was known for his like hypnosis like he, many students who reported um being abused by him said that he would he would you know get, uh, use hypnosis on them yeah. and also that was one of his fields of study when he was doing his psychology um masters i think i think the teacher of the course talked about that that he was very very interested in hypnosis and using yeah. that as a as a quote-unquote therapy tool so i'd say like as much as he could possibly manipulate that that's what he was whatever tools you get your hand yeah on, so yeah. It, you can imagine the double-edged sword then of you know like repressing uh, as much as you could yourself but also that he you know had those words like clean yourself up and get back to class was you know now you're you again yeah. you know also um if he was you know, implanting when 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 the he's implanting like post hypnotic suggestions. So when the letter went out from Gene and the network to former alumni of uh, Archbishop Keogh, they said call this number. That like all of them, were like, oh my god, if I call that number, they're going to get me. They're going to kill me. Like that uh, sense of impending dread, that yeah. doom that hung over them all if they spoke about it was fear. like the fear that was put into him as a post hypnotic suggestion. Like yeah. if you tell anybody about this, you yeah. will die. And then whether it's like a rational thing of like, we're going to come to your house, we're going to find you, we're going to kill you in, the, in your bed or whatever. The feeling of like, if I do this, I will die. Doesn't need kind of any rational explanation if it's implanted as a post-hypnotic suggestion, a feeling. Well, something we haven't mentioned already that I think is really important to point out. Jane's father was a policeman. As well, yeah. So, so like, there's so much that you can fucking talk about here. Like, like how, so many links. Like, but I'm just going to briefly mention this. Yeah. Like, how instilled was that fear yeah like you know at that stage in life maybe not today but at that stage in life a policeman would have been seen as in the world like you know yeah that's that's who gets rid of the boogeyman yeah the law is the law yeah whereas like not only <sighs> would would she have been fearful for the repercussions if she did tell anybody but also, there were two policemen involved in actually abusing her. So I thought three. Uh, possibly three. I thought there were two. So, like, how instilled was her fear and her, you know, inability to tell somebody if she, if her father was a policeman and she couldn't go to him with it? And also, that from age three to age twelve, her uncle had had diddled her. 
and yeah. she couldn't go to her father about her uncle. Well, I don't know that. No, I don't know that either, but I'm presuming yeah. if he if nothing happened to him that she never told anybody about but it. But we don't know if anything ever happened to him or not. That is yeah. not discussed at all. Yeah, I can't find that. The either. only thing I heard about her uncle was that she had guilt to, about the abuse yeah. and that was why she went into confession to Magnus that first day. Yeah, I'd say there's also an element of knowing that these policemen were coming in and sexually abusing her in secret. The trust bond that was there for police or for people in like her father's cohort she may be thinking like, oh Jesus, I wonder, is my dad coming in as well and abusing somebody else? Because obviously there's other people involved here. I wouldn't want to like, even go there. But that's the thing, like, all of that stuff was like so deeply yeah. intertwined and Maskell was using, like I talk about it now, he was using anything that he could get his hands on to yeah. to hammer that shit home. Tell us then about, about Joseph Maskell. Claire. The main culprit in this whole saga um was Father A. Joseph Maskell, um, Anthony Joseph Maskell, I think is his name. Um, he was a Catholic priest who served in the Archdiocese of Baltimore, Maryland from his ordination at 26 years old in 1965 to 1994 when he was removed for historic allegations of abuse. Maskell apparently wanted to be a priest from a very young age and when other kids were out playing with footballs, little Joey Maskell was doing pretend mass in the courtyard. He used to ask his mother to buy his, him crackers so he could give out communion at recess. That's a fucking weird kid. Now, that is weird, but I, I do think it's also strange that uh, people refer to him a lot through the documentary as being obsessed with uh, law enforcement. Yeah. His brother was in law enforcement. Yeah. He was obsessed with guns. He owned a lot of guns. Yeah. I would Big wonder, time. like it says he was, he was, uh, you know, obsessed with being a priest from the beginning, but I would wonder, was there some issue with him physically or mentally that he wasn't allowed to be a policeman? And priest was the next choice. Anyways, we'll go. What, what, what physical issue would you think? Maybe height. I don't know what height he was. Yeah, maybe he was flat footed. Maybe it was flat footed. Maybe there was something, something that they would have known early on. You know, like you would maybe know. Maybe didn't pass a psychological evaluation. No, because that you wouldn't know that from childhood. Right, right, right. Like something like you know, like if somebody was colorblind, they couldn't be a pilot. Was there some reason that he knew? You wouldn't know whether the red light means stop or go or whatever. I don't know what the rule is. I just know that that's a rule. Is that you know, Lou? It was in oh, Little Miss Sunshine. These beautiful green skies were flying through today. Like, welcome uh, Board American Airlines. So. Anyway, I don't know. But anyway, I'm going to say a bit more about Maskell and I'll come back to that in a second. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Yeah. So he worked in many areas in the Diocese in Sacred Heart of Mary in 65 and 66. And then he transferred to St. Clement's from 66 to 68. And then he transferred again to Our Lady of Victory in 68, where he worked simultaneously in Archbishop Keogh High School as a counsellor and chaplain from 67 to 75, was also a supervisor of a Boy Scout troop in Baltimore. So he was also chaplain to the um, Baltimore County Sheriffs, and I think he had something to do with the uh, city police in Baltimore and as well. Was, uh, and his brother was a high-ranking police officer. was a high-ranking police officer. So, and, and other people who knew him in the police, I think including um, Scannell, yeah. said he was... He, he was... V- he would go on ride-alongs with them. Oh, he was very interested in He was cops. very interested in it. So that's why I wondered, was there some issue that didn't make him, didn't allow him to become a cop, so Priest was the next highest regarded? Maybe it's like the old, you know, the old Irish families where you have one 
brother is a cop and one is a yeah. priest. Like you always have to in all these families and have ten kids or whatever yeah. that they nearly have to like choose the the holiest cunt. Yeah, will go will be chosen. Like right, you're going to be the priest because you're sometimes odd. the brightest, or sometimes the brightest, yeah. or the oddest. Yeah, like you get to be in the priesthood, and uh, you know one of them's it's t- it's that fucking you know the the you probably never watched the old sixties Batman, but the the commissioner Bing Bash, yeah, Bing Bosh, Bing yeah. Pow. Uh, it was always the commissioner was like, "Oh, Batman, Charantia here now to save solve the crime." Like it was always the Irish guards is the trope, you know. Yeah, yeah, and actually, yeah. there's always one priest yeah. and one guard in a yeah. family of of Irish, yeah. you know, descendants. So yeah. like, maybe he just got maybe that was he the just thing. Pill, pulled the priest straw. Yeah. Well, anyway, after abuse claims from teachers came in 1975, the new headmistress in Archbishop Keogh dismissed him. Um, she was known to take no shit mm. she dismissed him immediately and was moved and he was moved again to what is known as uh, the division of schools from 75 to 80 what he did there nobody really knows um as it was a fairly opaque organization so god knows like division of schools it's like yeah. department of water it's yeah like, you know what do you but also you like do? look at the amount of different positions he held and yeah. how i'm actually in awe of his energy i'm like Jesus, he got around. If you're back to that Louis C.K. thing, like, no, it's it's that good. I don't he, appreciate it. He works that. hard at it. I don't appreciate that. So, it's not that it's that good. I'm saying the concept he, he of was, it. He was he that was hungry, for, for hungry for it. the power. Yeah. Anyway, when the abuse, abuse claims came out in earnest and uh, in public beginning in 1992, the Catholic Church sent him to what is called the Institute of Living which is essentially a psychiatric facility used by the church to house paedophile priests to undergo, quote-unquote, treatment. Treatment. However, Hiding. the um, person in charge at that time was interviewed for the documentary, mm. and he said that he was not told that they were going there for treatment for being paedophiles. They were told that they were... The Institute of Living were being told by the church that these priests were being sent for anxiety and depression. Mm. And when he was speaking to one of the priests that was sent there, the priest said, I'm not here for depression. I'm not depressed. I had sex with a 14-year-old. And, and I'm delighted about it. And the man from the the psychi- psychiatrist from the Institute of Living got in touch with the church and said, unless you give us full, factual, true representations of the people you're sending us, we will not work with them. And then they were never referred to another person again. Yeah. As soon as the Institute of Living said, stop sending us your paedophiles, we know they're paedophiles. Yeah. And where else were they being sent? We don't know. So, um, after a short stint in the Institute of Living, I think he was only there for six months, um, he was allowed out and became pastor of St. Augustine Church from 93, 94, when uh, more serious and court-bound allegations came out and he was removed and sent to Ireland, basically because people in St. Augustine Church found out what was being alleged um, Mm -hmm. and said not good enough to their archdiocese. So that's why he was removed and sent to Ireland. Get him out. Get Get him over to Ireland. So on the 31st of July 1994, Maskell fled to Wexford in Ireland. To Wexford. Which was like where a lot of child abuse was happening. Now, I heard he went to Limerick. He did go to Limerick because that's where his father was from. Okay. And I I had read that he'd gone to Limerick. Yeah. And I've been telling you all week he went to Limerick. Yeah. And last night, I found out that he went to Wexford oh. in my note gathering. And I wanted to keep it from you until right now to see your surprised face. Yeah. 
to go to I'm not even surprised. fucking cunt was sent to Wexford, yeah. would you? The capital of paedophile priests. Yeah. It can be classified as a hotbed of paedophile priests in Ireland. Um, the Ferns Diocese. I mean, obviously there's loads of shit. Artane yeah. and there was loads of yeah, mad. Yeah. Like, I'm not claiming like Wexford is no. the... I don't think spot. I don't think it's a claim. I, I wouldn't be putting my hand up looking for that claim. Anyway. Ar- arguably, a lot of paedophile priests yeah. were down there, and the Ferns report and all that stuff. Like, like yeah, the Ferns is not a big place. No, but the Ferns diocese is like the whole of the southeast, basically. So right, like okay. that whole Ferns diocesan mm. area, yeah, um, covers a lot of ground and yeah. a lot of parishes, and there's lots of little parishes with loads of priests and. Yeah, there were a lot Fucking of inquiries. Fucking shit was happening, man, for years. Like, yeah. So, Father Sean Fortune, do you want to talk about him, Gordon, being a Wexford man? Well, I mean, Father Fortune was uh, a, a a staple of our traumatized uh, secondary school comedy. Anyone that ever went to secondary school in Wexford at the time, so many Father Fortune jokes and like there was. Uh, I mean, I remember joking about it all the time because it was the only way you could cope with knowing that this motherfucker up to like the late 90s like all through our school time was like habitually and and uh prolifically abusing um young young lads in Wexford um father fortune was an infamous Wexford pedophile priest and was accused during his training imagine oh my god uh of sexually assaulting uh, a, a child and also a co seminarian but he was still allowed to then, you know, confer and become a priest uh, in the Feathered on Sea area in uh, the New New Ross in the western part of Wexford. And then uh, he went on to Belfast and Dundalk as well and then back to Wexford. Many accusations were made of him in all of these places. And he even took boys to the infamously haunted house, Loftus Hall. Uh, you can hear on the Monster Fuzz pod with Eamon and Rob to do an episode on Loftus Hall. We've talked about it as well here. It, it was uh, rumoured to be haunted after the devil came one night to play a game of cards and the woman who owned the house dropped the cards and when she looked under the table she saw the devil's hooves and he shot up through the roof and they tried to fix the roof and it's still all, a hole always appears every time they fix it. So it's like a place where Satan lives and he fucking brought young lads there and got them to play fucking Limp Biscuit or whatever and abused them in this place. Obviously some satanic ritual abuse, like some fucking crazy shit, but yeah, he was, um, he was lamped. He was put on leave by the Catholic Church, by the foreign diocese, uh, awaiting trial. And then he killed himself in a house in New Ross while awaiting trial in 1999 and evaded justice. And everyone was raging. It became a national news story. Priest commits suicide. Like, a, a priest dying by suicide is a huge thing. Uh, but especially after, like, being accused of this terrible crime, and then being like sequestered by not arrested or not put in any kind of custody or not put under any suicide watch and just like moved out of his parish and given like a little housing away off in the country. And then he had like as all the priests do, they have some sort of a you know, a lady that takes care housekeeper. of housekeeper. Housekeeper that takes care of their washing and mm. cooks their dinners and all because, you know, I mean they're men and they can't take care of themselves or something somehow. And uh he just fucking took a took a load of drugs and drank on top of it, and was found brown bread in nineteen ninety nine. So, in the Ferns report, which was created by the Ferns diocese, uh, the failings of the police and the diocese of Ferns to investigate these claims against priests such as Father Donald Collins, Father James Doyle, Father James Grennan, 
Canon Martin Clancy, and then Father Sean Fortune, led to many others being hurt by by these cases. Like they they failed to investigate reports, the police failed to follow up with investigations. The fucking writing's on the wall. People were reporting this shit all the time. Uh, Father Donald Collins was involved in St Peter's College in Wexford. Loads of lads in Wexford Town got interfered with by by Father Collins. Like uh, there was Christian Brothers at that shit as well, catching lads in toilets and. So many reports, it was prolific, like so prolific, you wouldn't believe it. And the operating procedure by the then Bishop Donald Hurley was to transfer these men from the areas of accusations into areas that weren't too fucking far away because they were still within the Ferns Diocese, so they were just getting moved from one parish to another parish. So they were doing the same thing. Same thing, but in, just on a smaller scale. As in scale. Maryland, yeah. yeah. Like, but Baltimore is a big-ass place, yeah. Like, so you're moving from St. Clement's where he... Yeah. Where where Maskell got at uh, uh, Charles Franz, yeah, moved them like f- five minutes drive down the road to Archbishop Keogh, which is an all girls school, so th- they wouldn't have any c- crossover with the chat between the, the kids or whatever. But like moving a lad from New Ross to Enniscorthy, you might be you might as well be moving them from fucking New York to Las Vegas. Like nobody in New Ross has taught anyone in Enniscorthy in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, I mean, I suppose like we're we're living in in Ballina now. Like, how many people would you go out in a night out and ever meet anyone from Castle Bar, which is only, like, 45 minutes drive up no, the road? So, like, move a priest and you won't hear nothing about the cunt. He's gone. Yeah. And this is what they did. Donald Hurley, he had to, he, his feet were held to the fire for it. He transferred these men. Um, He was said to not have treated these cases as a criminal issue, but more of a moral problem. So they didn't face any criminal charges or they weren't reported in a criminal fashion. But also but they did... A, a, a failure to take care of their parishioners or take advantage of children. But they acted like these were misdemeanors, like you had a few too many drinks. Yeah, a moral like problem. Like you had a few too many drinks, but you weren't an alcoholic. Yeah. So like you didn't need treatment for alcoholism, or maybe you did, but you'd be fixed in six months. And then you were just going to magically never drink again? I, I uh, the, the feeling at the time was the reason the priests were moved from the parish was because the place that they were in, the kids that they were, like, being interfered with, like... The kids they the, were interfering, they were interfering with, with... Yes. ...were too sexy, and he had to move them away from the temptation. As if it was the kids' fault. The kids' fault that they'd made that connection with those particular children, and it was a moral failing on behalf of the priest to engage with them... So in order to remove temptation, they'd move them to another place so they'd have to form new relationships and hopefully it wouldn't happen again. Rather than going, wherever this cunt goes, he's going to be looking for. Wherever he goes, that's what he wants and he's going to find it. So it's like moving away from the families that he had groomed, moving away from the children that he know on a personal level, just moving to a different parish where he'll have to start all over again. Yeah. And it'll take him a year or two to get, get his mojo back. Yeah, I don't know. It's it- fucking... Seems about two years is about the amount of time it takes for a priest to come in, groom a family, and groom a child, find a victim, and abuse them enough times to have that person. Two to report five them. years, it seems. Yeah, yeah. And you're out. Yeah. Like that's what Maska was doing. Sixty-five to sixty-seven, sixty-seven, sixty-nine. Yeah, and the keepers is just about a few victims from Archbishop Keogh, which is one school. 
But there's no mention of, say, for example, the scouts that he was involved with in, and yeah. like there's what, no what, doubt what vulnerable kids he he had access to by being involved with like police ride-alongs, yeah. going to like domestic abuse. Yeah. Things, he could literally be looking stuff. at houses that were maybe like had familial problems or like where there would be vulnerable children, where maybe there wasn't, you know for whatever reason parents weren't able to give the same level of support yeah. um, or stable parental environment yeah and then he's like saved file yeah. I'll get them in school if they don't come you home know, late like, from school the parents won't be asked any questions because a lot of the people who, who did speak or who were referred to by um, the ladies in the keepers documentary like they would say you know like they'd be sitting in the class and then Father Mesca would come on the intercom and say you know uh, Gordo to my office please and that student could be like why like why am I being called mm. but they're being called because he's found out information about them he gets them in he counsel, quote unquote counsels them gets yeah. them to confess some fucking mad shit so I see uh, you're in a tumble down house and your yeah. parents are at home we ever interfered with and then yeah. the, the, it comes out and then he's like bang I got you or it doesn't matter whether there were or there no, weren't no but you know what I mean yeah. like it's the line of questions specifically targeted yeah. what's mad though is in Wexford what they did they sent them to, like Maskell, off for psychological evaluation. It wasn't to the Institute for Life or anything like that. But they sent them off for psych, psych evaluation. But after concerns expressed by psychologists of their suitability to interact with young people, instead of saying, okay, these motherfuckers can't have, like, altar boys or be practicing priests, we need to get rid of them out of the, the whole business. The diocese's decision was to instead appoint curates which are like kind of like almost priests. So they had caretaker curates in living with them as well as their housekeeper to keep an eye and mind them. I never knew that. that That's why curates were brought in. Curates were brought in to make sure that the priest wouldn't get carried away from this. And what now, happened if the curate was now, now, father, a pedophile as well? Now, now, father. Keep our hands to ourselves now, father. Like they had fucking bodyguards and priests. I was thinking like, but what happens if the curate is a predefined? Sure, look, wouldn't that be a great job? You wouldn't have the. That's what I'm saying. You then you're t- you have a team. Yeah, you have a, a, a ring, as it were. Okay, can we? G- <laughs> yeah, go on. Okay. So yeah, the pedophiles and monks were just so bad. They had to <laughs> appoint uh, caretakers to make sure that they didn't just go mental, uh, like a crazy, a crazy uh, decision by the diocese. But like, they'd rather do that than. Fire them? What like what mad hold did they have over society that they couldn't just get rid of this priest? But then I suppose they'd have to admit to the actual things happening, which means I think it came down to a lot of the reasons things don't change in the church, and that's money. Yeah. Well, there was uh, only six women detailed in the keepers documentary, but apparently, uh, like we said at the top of the show, Ryan White, the director and creator of the keepers said that there was 40 women uh, possibly involved in particularly uh, Father Maskell's abuse. Yeah. Uh, whether Father Magnus or any other people were involved in other girls' abuse, but there was 40 that had come forward. Potentially hundreds, but like, they were either dead because these women were in their mid to late 60s or uh, they were too afraid to come forward. But the women that did come forward uh, or had uh, at least identified themselves to other women within the network. Uh, 25 of them are ready to be filmed on camera with Ryan White and only six ended up going into the final cut. But like we said, Jesus man, you could do fucking 10 seasons of this shit on this case particularly alone from yeah. one school. 
from one man. Mm. So you can only imagine the depth and breadth that this fucking shit goes to. There was one weird thing, Claire, mm. that I thought could be and should be at the forefront of all these investigations. You want to know where they are? I'd like to see some of them. The boxes that were buried, known as the graveyard files. Yeah. What the fuck? That was in episode five, and it blew my socks off because I'm like, of course, that's that's a treasure trove of uh, pedophile rings information. That's like uh, Epstein's flight logs. That's you know, yeah. it's the it's the thumb drive with everybody's info. Um, but it was just buried in a graveyard. But also, I think it was his trophy case. Uh, Potentially too, yeah. yeah. They always do that. So t- can you tell us then about the graveyard files? So during the investigation, there was a set of files that was reported to be found in a local graveyard. In 1994, when the accusations were flying, a cemetery custodian reported to the local police that Maskell had ordered him to dig a big trench in the graveyard grounds and in it he had to put boxes and boxes of documents all sealed in cling film and plastic. The custodian thought this suspicious after the accusations um, that were, you know, about in 94 and they were exhumed from this temporary grave. I think the custodian also said uh, in the documentary that um, he was told by Maskell not to look at, at any of the boxes. Yeah. And he knew that Maskell was asking him to do something that definitely wasn't church business. Yeah, for sure. So he said, yeah, I think I will look. And he had a look and he thought this is really inappropriate he saw something inappropriate and he reported it. Well, what he saw was photos of little girls' boobies. Yeah. So the custodian thought this suspicious um, and the the boxes were exhumed from the temporary grave. WMAR, a subsidiary of ABC in Baltimore, were on the scene and filmed extensive footage of the documents being removed. The custodian also claimed that he saw pictures of young girls with exposed breasts, as you mentioned, and other medical type documents, but the diocese and the police deemed the documents not pertinent to the case and did not show proof of sexual misconduct. Like, come on. Obvious shit. Yeah, Gemma Hoskins thought differently, however, and worked with video archivists to take and enhance still images from the WMAR video to see if they could read any of the remaining documents. There were seven boxes left after the rest were taken by law enforcement, and in that were no proof of paedophilia. Eleven police officers arrived after 7am to remove the boxes and documents from the pit, which was 12 foot square and 10 feet deep. Was this Maskell's insurance policy, proof of all the shenanigans and a protection against WCOSIES? Wilcozies. Wilcozies, the worst case of suicide I've ever seen. Two shots in the back of the head from the Pope. I think maybe it was his insurance policy. It could have been, you know, pictures, uh, applications, letters, correspondence. Like this was before, you know, emails and shit like that where you have everything digitised and you have it in behind these uh, firewalls and on these... um, uh, secure thumb drives where you can just have thousands of people's blackmail information on a little small box that you keep on your key ring and no yeah. one's going to fuck with you or else it goes online. So like, yeah, I mean, where would you put that stuff if you were a, a priest? Back in the day. Back in the day. That well, you also, knew wouldn't be in, 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 didn't one of the girls with. that was featured in the, or one of the ladies that was features, featured in the documentary, didn't she say that she was first... Um, brought in because she was like say good at typing and she was a good student yeah yeah. so like she was asked by Maskell to type up notes and she remembers typing up gyne- gy- like gynecological information yeah Um, I know we're going to talk about 
Dr. Richter, but like, you know, Maskell definitely, Maskell definitely had, to my mind, he was keeping not only information he could blackmail other people with, but trophies, trophies for himself. Yeah, I think. He needed to know he still had access to all of that information for, you know, because like later on when he's a daughter old man, he's still a paedophile. Yeah, you want, it's his wank bank. Yeah, that's what I think. I, I, I would agree somewhat. Yeah. In a in a maybe an eighty twenty. Right, okay. Like twenty is like that it's the wank bank. I think eighty is that's the fucking like if he's if he's the crooks, like if he's the don of a certain like the whole Baltimore pedophile ring. Yeah. Like he's not gonna fuck around and let uh, everybody do it. Like police, politicians, fucking he is like the 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 pimp of all of this stuff like he's the fucking the crooks of all of these people coming together yeah of course he wants to protect himself because all it takes is for one politician to go well look at one crooked politician or one crooked cop to go like okay well look at we can't do anything without this mask guy say so and he's like ran by the church and remember how deeply rooted the the Catholic power structure was in the original the OG American diocese of Baltimore yeah so like if you wanted to be a cop that wanted to break through that wanted to investigate that wanted to do that stuff uh, you wouldn't be promoted unless you went to Maskell. Yeah. So you'd have to go through him. Yeah. And then he had the goods on you so you could never actually no you know report or come in and say like unless you were going to do a full serpico and go okay I'm going to take the hit I'm going to perform pedophile acts. Like remember I said earlier on Gene yeah, remember there was a policeman like who wasn't cop, he was reluctant. Yeah. And, and, and Mask had to, had to coach him into it. Yeah. Like, imagine, like, you had a Serpico who was like, right, I'm going to go full pedo, I'm going to go full Donny Brasco on this shit and, like, have sex with the kids in order to get up the ladder, like, the departed, and then eventually go, okay, I did have sex with a 14-year-old, but I got all of this stuff, like, lock me up, I'm willing to go to jail, but I fucking toppled this pedophile ring. Like, I've never heard of anybody so virtuous that would do that. No, no. But, like, you wouldn't get to the position where you'd be able to actually have any agency over these cunts, like, unless you were... It's Doing like, you the know, same stuff. In training day when yeah. it's like, I didn't know you like to get wet. Like, yeah. then make you smoke the drugs yeah. before you're allowed to do the, the yeah. drug dealing in the undercover operation. Yeah. And by that stage, you end up like uh, Jason Mantzoukas in Brooklyn so 99. So yeah. you're so far in, you, you're actually fucking... You, you might as well be a criminal and... Yeah, you know, so like it's uh, that's Mask's fucking protection because I have. So do you think that like the custodian thinks he's doing a good thing? He sees what's in it. Yeah, he reports it to the cops. The cops go brilliant. Now he's nothing over us. Now I don't care what the church does with him. Yeah, he can go to Ireland for all we care. Yeah, and he was fucked at that point. Mask was done. He had nothing over them. He had to be honest. I think the reason he went to Ireland is because if he had stayed in Baltimore, he would have ended up with two shots in the back of the head. Worst case suicide I've ever seen. Okay. That was in 1994 as the case yeah. was all coming apart. Yeah. Like, these motherfuckers were like... And he was dead in six years dead anyway. Dead in six years. Like, we, Matt, they were going, Maskell, yeah. where's the fucking thumb yeah. drive? Yeah. Where's the where's the info? And he's like, you never get it from me. And then one custodian. Yeah. Like, I lo- that lad remained anonymous. I'd love to know where he is now. Right. Well, a police informant they called Deep Throat claims that the documents that are available um, and not destroyed by water damage hold clues to the links Maskell had in the medical and psychiatric community, including the MCMI or... Yeah, it's a tough one. The Millen Clinical Multi-Axial Inventory. Yeah, what he says. It's it's almost like the DSM, 
Oh, okay. But for like schizophrenia, depression. Basically, like it's a menu of symptoms to look for in children that have deep psychological disorder. Right. So, <laughs> Do you know, a paedophile's dream handbook. Yeah. So that like uh, um, a report, news report from 10th of August 1994 said that a psychologist and Maskell got a grant to set up a psychological testing centre in 1975. What? Why would a priest want a psychological testing centre? I, I tried to find more about it. This is from one of those. I went uh, skirting through these archives of uh, old Baltimore Sun uh, reports. Uh, I found this one from the 10th of August. And it reported that in 75, he got a grant from the government. Yeah. What was his the psychological testing? What was he testing? What was going, why, why, what was his massive interest or involvement in psychological testing? Where did the grant come from? Yeah, exactly. There was an episode of that foul play that had a, a, an ex-FBI agent that was talking about the MK Ultra links. And I'm, I'm, I'm balls to the wall convinced, Claire. Yeah. That Maskell was involved, as much as Jim Jones was involved as a religious leader, a cult leader who brought all those people to Guyana and convinced them all to kill themselves. As much as Charlie Manson was feeding his uh, cohorts full of the sunshine acid and convincing them that a race war was on the cards, like, Maskell, I think, was a man of great influence who showed great potential at a young age and was inculcated into this group as someone who had the skills and talent Terrible, terrible, awful inhuman skills and talent to be able to, you know, facilitate the raping of girls and then have them be absolutely unimpeachable as far as, like, their testimony in a criminal proceeding. That everybody who had sex with him was fully safe, that he had it all on lock, he had his watch and he had his fucking, you know, special cups of tea that he used to give the girls to... to calm them down yeah, as yeah. he gave their as they give their therapy. The girl, yeah, who took notes from said she all, he always gave her a coke at the yeah. beginning of the session. Yeah, this kind of shit like yeah. uh, feeding them torazine, mescaline. Yeah, more more likely LSD. Yeah, like there was definitely some fucking military grade shenanigans happening there. You know. So are we going to look at suspects then? Because we Let's, we we're, we, we're we burning could, daylight. Yeah, we could. Uh, one little thing I want to say is yeah. in the documentary uh, that uh, the African American uh, district attorney at the time, the state's attorney at Ms. the time, May. yes, Sharon May, uh, she can shit in her hands and clap. That dead-eyed, unemotional, heartless bitch, who was possibly not involved, but definitely on the hook politically, uh, ignored everything pushed everything under the carpet and the whole time that the case was going on from 92 uh, until its dismissal from Supreme Court or whatever in 95 and she served the state's attorney until 2004 and then for her good work and her very close associations with the Catholic Church was promoted to the head of the sexual crimes unit at the district attorney's office in 2004 I think there's something not right about how she handled it so it wasn't just the people within the church that there's an awful lot of people who were like well these guys hold the power so I am beholden to their whims and and uh, needs and wants and requests. I felt that she was kind of like, I've nothing to do with the Catholic Church. I'm not even that religion. They're not that powerful. But when it comes down to the law, we didn't have enough within the law to um, arrest and prosecute Maskell. Is that what you felt? That's what I felt she was saying. Oh, that's what she was saying, but I knew she was bought and paid for. But... 
what 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 I think a lot of people felt watching her was yeah you're saying the right words and they're hard to argue with mm. so I can see why it didn't go any further but yeah. but but also how do you sleep at night how the fuck do you sleep at night yeah that's that's what I would say about that's that that's enough about Charmaine yeah let's get into this her mentioning thing. her convertible on the drive to the graveyard boxes yeah was if I could be really like this is probably the most um unfounded comment I will ever make, but it's from my core. I feel like she mentioned her convertible in some kind of a, a psychological admission of guilt. Like a duper's delight. Yeah. Yeah. Like like she didn't mean to. Yeah. But she went, I mean, I remember driving and I put the top down because it was a really hot day. And what her soul was saying was, fuck yous, I got a convertible for that. Yeah. For pretending that there was nothing in those boxes. Yeah. It was like almost a, a confession of sorts. Yeah. 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 That's like in, like in Get Out. But there's, there's no, like a, I have no basis. in there that wants to confess. Yeah, but I have yeah. no basis for that. But I felt like she couldn't keep it in. I think the people... Uh, I can't comment anymore because I haven't got the, the it's pure speculation. I on haven't my done part. my due diligence on the information about her. I just feel that when you're watching a documentary and you see her fucking face and you hear the bullshit, that it'll pucker your arse as much as it puckered mine and and yours, Claire. Was your arse puckered? My my yeah, I didn't like her. Yeah, I, didn't like I, her. I thought I'd get you to say your arse was puckered, but no, okay. clean it right up. <laughs> Uh, so the suspects then, uh, Maskell had a brother who was in the police force called Tommy, presumably Maskell, surname, and was fairly high up in the Baltimore police. He worked under Bud Romer, who was also another highly suspicious cunt. Uh, the famed murder squad chief in Baltimore at the time, who was in charge of all criminal investigations, including the one into Sister Cathy's murder. Um, Maskell, uh, Tommy Maskell was conveniently placed at the top of the police force food chain, uh, Romer and Tommy and the other police could have been involved in that abuse ring as well. They could have been calling into that fire exit door uh, that was going on at the school at the time and worked together to collude, uh, obfuscate information and work to dismiss charges, dismiss witnesses, misinvestigate evidence in both Sister Cathy and in the murder of Joyce Malecki, who was a woman who was, who was murdered in very similar circumstances and found in very similar circumstances uh, at, at almost the same time as uh, Sister Cathy. Now, I couldn't find the links between Joyce Malecki and the, the paedophile ring as such. Um, yeah. They go into a little bit in the documentary and in the wonderful uh, Foul Play uh, podcast with uh, Gemma Hoskins. They do talk about Joyce's case at length, but that's not for this show, so I won't no. go too deep into it. But just the fact that these cops, including Joseph Maskell's brother... We're just running interference, uh, you know, uh, criminally uh, for these cases just to make it go away. Like, when you think about mafia movies, and I know you don't like the mafia movies, you don't like anything to do with no. those guys, but, like, those motherfuckers had their business done. It's called organized crime for a reason because them motherfuckers are organized. Mm. So, like, I don't know. You can't get around it if you have people at that high level they're the boss, and what they say goes. And it just so happens that the most prolific paedophile priest was highly connected to the top police in the area. And the fellow who was accused of being involved in a nun's murder had one of his bestie mates investigating the murder. 
Of course that murder wasn't ever going to be solved. Sorry. Yeah. Like, tough shit, you know? Yeah. So uh, his brother, definitely, I don't know about suspect in the murder, but definitely in the cover-up and potentially in the uh, habitual raping of the girls um, in Maskell's office at the school. I mean, it, it, it stands to reason why wouldn't he be one of those policemen? It stands to reason. But then again, we don't know. We don't know. But we can assume with prejudice we because can ass- they're yeah. pedophiles. You're happy to assume. I'm happy to assume that Joseph Maskell's brother was running interference and possibly dipping his wick as well. Mm. Because, you know. Um, another one, Claire, Jerry Coob. Yes. Tell us a bit about Jerry. What do you remember about Jerry from the doc? So Jerry Coob had um, a very close relationship with Sister Kathy. Some would call um, it the hots. Yeah. Like... To, to me, what came across in the documentary is that they had a very strong connection, very strong friendship, that Jerry was in love with her and that he would have left, you know, was willing to leave religious life for her and had asked her if she, if he did, would she marry him? Would she leave as well? Um, I would say they were close friends. I, I don't believe that they were sexual partners. I don't believe that that was Kathy's personality at all. I wouldn't think she'd cheat on her, on her vocation. I don't think so. I think she was thinking very deeply. She may have been in love with him. She may have been, yeah. But it wasn't a sexual yeah. thing. Um, uh, so. Although Jerry some people did want it. Huh? Jerry well, did want it. Well, Jerry loved her. He was honest about that in the documentary. A lot of, a lot, like there was an investigative journalist um, who was very sceptical about anything Jerry Coop had to say. Um, I didn't believe he was the killer. Um, his reliability is often called into question by fans seeking justice. He appears many times in, in the documentary as a resource on the church. The first person Kathy's roommate called to report her as missing. So before Sister Russell phoned the police to say that she believed Kathy was missing, she phoned Jerry Coop. Now, the times of that are very suspicious. Right. Totally suspicious. Like, Kathy goes missing. Uh, her her car is supposed to be parked outside the house at 10.30, like two hours after she went shopping. So at 10.30, her car is there, but she's not there. Now, think about the scenario. Russell Phillips, Sister Russell, is inside the apartment waiting for Kathy to come home. That's what we can assume. Um, At 11 p.m., she's like, hmm. Sister Kathy's car is there, but Kathy's not there. Who does she ring the police? No. She rings Jerry Coob and Father McKeown. McKeown. We'd, we'd say McKeown in Ireland, McKeown, but they yeah. seem to call him McKean. Yeah, well. Father McKeown. <laughs> uh, and the two boys rock over to Sister Russell. And this gives me very McCann's vibes. Right. Remember Kate and Jerry, they find out the child is missing and it takes them 45 minutes to ring the cops. I, re- I remember all of that they episode. they ring Sky first. Check out that episode if you want to know more. You Go need on. to get it on Patreon. Go on, Jerry. Oop. So Jerry and McKeown show up and uh, they wait two hours to ring the cops. Like, what's going on in that They're two hours? They're saying mass. Yeah. But the, but the night before, they rock up and say mass. No. Is it that night, the night she goes missing? Yeah. But the night before, the two lads were no. in the apartment as well. No. The night before, Father Maskell and Father Magnus possibly, but some other oh, priest. Oh, that's what it was. Supposedly, was. a student said she, they, that herself, right. two students from Archbishop Keogh, 
No, a girl, a girl and, her, and boyfriend her boyfriend rock up to the house. Were chatting to, to Kathy, possibly because they were still in Keogh and Kathy wasn't, and they were visiting. Who knows? And they claim the assumption is though that they were there to go. Hey, sister Kathy, we know that you got sacked out of school because you're trying to fuck with Father Maskell's business. That's the assumption. And he was doing that shit to me as well. And can you help me out? That's kind and of inferred. And then Father right? Maskell came into the apartment. Okay, That's so the two boys burst in the night before yeah. and threatened everybody, including Sister Russell. That's not accounted. I mean, one can assume if they're You're bursting into an the assumption. house. If they're bursting into the house. But I didn't hear the word burst. They came into the apartment. Yeah. You would wonder why they would be doing that though. I don't know. Okay, so let's live in the drama for a minute, Claire. Okay. A priest who's been having sex with all the girls in the school is accused by a, a nun. Yes. And then that nun is surreptitiously fired slash Moved. encouraged to yeah. move away, which is what they kind of love doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To live outside of the 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 confines of the nunnery. cloth, the nunnery, right? Yeah. So she's by and large like ejected from the order, seemingly of her own volition. And she's living privately like a lay person in an apartment up the road. And then another accuser comes, yet another, you know, uh, 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 cut to a thousand cuts in Maskell's paedophile operation. Yeah. Comes to her privately and Maskell hears about it. Of course he's going to burst into the apartment and go, you, Sesnick, you fucking bitch, you're ruining shit for me. And this is a, this little slut has come in here now with her boyfriend and she's giving you all this stuff. Like all the stuff that he said to Jean, that he said to Teresa, yeah. like you're a slut, you're a whore, all this shit. Like he's coming in, bursting into the house yeah. with, with Magnus as well to go like, no more fucking trouble. Yeah. Because the next night she goes missing. Yeah. So presumably Russell is sitting there going, going? These two motherfuckers came in here and threatened us last night. Yeah. While one of the students who presumably he was abusing yeah. had come to reconnect with Kathy to see was she okay and was the stuff going through and was there any, you know. Yeah. The next night then, Kathy goes missing and Russell goes, oh shit, I can't ring the cops because they came in here and threatened us as they threatened everybody, including Jean, yeah. with being killed if you told anyone. So presumably Russell Phillips is shitting herself. Oh, I've always thought that Russell was threatened and that's why she didn't. So she rang Jerry Coop yeah. and McCune, yeah. get the fuck over here. And what did you say? They said mass? That's what they said. Yeah. That's what Jerry Coop said. Yeah. They prayed for her. Safe return. Yeah. But I think they knew that something bad had happened. So I, I what I think happened. Yeah. Right? Because we're going to use this as an off defense because obviously there's no run out of time. Yeah. And uh, an off defense is kind of like there's no way to know. But yeah. I think Jerry Coop is the man that covered up this murder. Whoever hit her or whoever burst in to the apartment and hit her a smack. Jerry Coob and Father McEwen were called by Sister Russell to come over because it was made to look like it was Coob because he was suspected straight away that somebody, that she had made it back to the apartment and some and her car was there because the neighbours said that her car was there from half ten. So maybe she came back she was in the apartment. Yeah. And somebody came in and hit her a clatter and threatened Russell. And Sister Russell was like, Ugh, rang Jerry. Jerry and McCune came over 
and they cleaned up, got rid of the body, put her in the car, drove it around, dumped it, and came back, and that's why there was muck in the car and why it was parked outside the house. Remember the inexplicable parking outside of the house? Because they had to get back to their house to get into their car to drive away home again. That's why the car was brought back, and that's why it was parked across the road so that they could pull their car out of the driveway so it wasn't in the way. I think she made it home. And I think right. that Jerry and McCune were called over. That's why there was two hours there, because they were cleaning up what, what was after happening. Maybe Magnus and, and, and Maskell had had some tug, paid some tug. So and we'll talk about this next guy, Billy Schmidt, now in a second. So why do Jer- Jerry Coob and Peter McCune have uh, cinema ticket stubs and a quote-unquote, quote, airtight alibi? Is it airtight though? I think it was there was holes poked in it during the documentary. That, that it was like, they could come out of a film at any time. Yeah. Yeah. They went for dinner as well. I mean, two priests on the on the town. If they're wanting to cover up a murder. I, I'm just saying. I know, I'm just saying. Know. That's the only explanation until I can find is why a mucky car was parked right outside of her house. I don't again. see that they're necessarily tied to the mucky car. This okay. is my theory about Jerry Coop. What's about it? Jerry Coop was in love with Sister Kathy. Mm-hmm. I don't believe Sister Kathy wrote the letter that was purported to be written by her. A love letter where she supposedly said things like, I got my period after being moody and, um, you know. That they were sexually intimate with one the, another. Yeah. Like, I just don't believe that somebody who is as, you know, I it's completely out of character. It's completely not the character that was that, that she was said to have had. Mm. She it would have been more her character to say, I'm leaving the nuns and I'm in love with Jerry Coop. Not it's to be writing him letters. Yeah. yeah. Um so I don't believe that she sent that letter that was referred to. Maybe that was Jerry just going, I, I But I slept with a nun on holidays, she goes to a different convent. But did Jerry Jerry didn't give, supply that letter, did he? I don't think so. No. So to towards the end of the series, a letter from Kathy to Coop is referenced and the contents of the letter I think Jerry had that letter, but he he couldn't he couldn't verify that it came from Kathy. But he said it's her handwriting, like he produced it. What I did find very weird about Coop, though, is even after all his protestations of "I love her, I love her," I, uh, that they never had any sexual congress apart from in the letter where it says we have had like sexual interest or whatever. Like talking about her periods is weird. Like if they weren't going out, especially from a nun, like it's not something that you. Would I still talk don't about. believe of the time. Of the time, I no don't one talk believe that, that a twenty-six-year-old woman is telling—I don't care how good friends there yeah—is telling a man, Priest. a man, yeah, about her period. No, whether she's in love with him, whether she—he's she considers him a friend. I just don't believe it. Yeah, this is in a time when foreplay was turning off the lights and saying, "Brace yourself, Claire." Yeah, yeah, I don't believe it. So there are things about their relationship. I think but, he's made but, to look like a liar because he had to lie about certain things to protect Russell. And I want to know is what the fuck happened then with Russell? So maybe yeah. my assertions of Jerry Coop cleaning up the body and the blah blah blah. Yeah, that's just to explain the biggest mystery about this whole thing is Sister Russell. Yes, and why she didn't tell what happened. And she's that deceased. Night, and she's dead now. And she she never said anything about it ever. No, right. But the weird fucking thing that Jerry Coop said about being interviewed by the police yeah. and was uncorroborated. The weirdest thing was when he's in the fucking interrogation room. He said that the cops came along. And wrapped up in newspaper, threw Sister Kathy's vagina up on the table. And I'm thinking, like, 
He's produced a letter that says that they were sexually intimate and blah, blah, blah. But had he and produced a letter? This is what it's saying here. Right. That he produced a letter saying that Cathy and him were sexually intimate okay. with each other. And that he was in the fucking interrogation room and the cops threw a, a, a presumably some kind of like a lamb's liver or some weird thing to intimidate him or whatever. But he was convinced and he was really crying. Yeah. In like the sixth episode saying, and then they threw her vagina up on the table. Like that made me think like, what? Like the first time we watched it, it was like, oh, whatever. It was just so overwhelming. Well, I'm no scientist and I have those female parts. Yes. I can't say that if they were cut out of me that I'd be able to recognise them. Or that you'd be able to throw them up on the table. Like a vagina is But what not I'm saying is, was there something put on a table to scare him, to make him admit to something that wasn't, wasn't necessarily any um, part of her anatomy? Uh, yeah, I think it could have been like a, like a fucking... Piece of meat. A piece of meat, a yeah. steak or now lamb's liver or a cow's arse or something just thrown wrapped up on the table, newspaper. wrapped in newspaper yeah. to intimidate him. Yeah. But the fact that he believed that it was like Sister Cathy's vagina, that a cop... Like, it just sounds like a weird lie. Like, it's like, yeah, I've had sex with a woman right in her vagina. Like, it just seems like a weird thing. Like, and he's in his fucking 60s. Like, why would he still be telling that story that they threw her vagina up on the table? Like, the vagina is like sugar balls. That's the canal. Like, what are you going to do? Like, Jack the Ripper fucking... Like, remember those things you get to peel the apple and you stick it in and you scoop it out? It's like, but I don't think the do? point like, is what it is. The point is that that's what was said to him. I know, but the fact that he repeats it that is like, but he's repeating, her vagina was put he's on the not, t- he's repeating what was said to him. There's a difference. He's repeating that they said to me, How disgusting is that? That they said that to me. He's not saying, I would know her vagina anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it winked back at me the same way that it did in the old days. Like, I don't believe, I think what he was trying to say was, they were so intent on getting me that they w- were trying to get me to emote. And, th- and because I wasn't emoting, this was the thing to get me to... We're putting chum wrapped in be newspaper mad. on the table. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, okay. It just That's my theory. Okay, anyway. yeah, no, well, I, I'm talking shite then, it must be... I, I just felt... I don't think a, he was like, oh yeah, it was definitely hers, if you know what I mean. I... That's what the, I don't know. You'd have to watch yourself. Yeah. We'll, watch we'll yourself and then come back to us. Hashtag Jerry Coob's fake vagina. We'll watch it. Who knows? Maybe he invented the fleshlight and that's where you got the idea for it. Okay. I don't know. Let's talk about but some. But Jerry Coob is definitely a fucking weird guy. There's definitely stuff he's lying about. Yes, definitely. And I feel like he's lying to protect somebody, not lying out of guilt. That's the way I feel about it. Mm, okay. I, I take it. Yeah. I take it. One of the next, uh, I think, very credible. Possible uh, perpetrators of Sister Cathy's death. Yes. Is a man called Billy Schmidt. Yeah. Schmidt was an eccentric. Yes. Possibly a crazy person. Yeah. And he was accused of um, murdering Sister Cathy. He lived in the apartment across the hall, across the complex. So he's only a, a couple of feet away from his front door to her front door. Yes. He consorted with a man called Skippy, a mysterious mustachioed man. Both of them would dress like a priest and a nun and run around the town. Um, who was it that said... Uh, also, Billy seemed to have a bit of a preoccupation with the church. He was fascinated with the church. Yeah. He, was a, he was a Catholic sympathizer, as it were. Yeah. And um, 
Billy's he was also wife. supposed to be gay. His sister-in-law felt he was gay. Yeah, he was hiding yeah. something. Yeah. And maybe him and Skippy were tripping the life fantastic. Yeah. He was riding Skippy's moustache like it was stolen. But that Skippy was um, apparently a bit of a scary person. Yes, yeah. a manipulator. Um, yeah. And who was it that said that they were driving a car and then a nun pulled up beside them at the yeah. traffic lights and then the nun looked over and it was actually Skippy because it was like a, a menacing looking man with a moustache. I think that was the sister-in-law. She recognised him. Sister-in-law, yeah. yeah. So like weird fucking shit from Billy Schmidt. Um, so one night, um, so Billy's sister-in-law was the one who was interviewed by the documentary. Right. Um, and she was saying about like she had a really close relationship with Billy, maybe not with her husband's uh, family, her ex-husband's family. Um, but her husband arrived home around the time of Sister Kathy's disappearance, mm-hmm. uh, covered in blood and without a decent explanation. Like, you know, he his behaviour changed in the months following. He had never really been into alcohol. He started to um, misuse alcohol and, and drugs and she would have kind of claimed he was definitely spiralling. Like there was, oh, he fell apart. He fell apart, yeah. Um, and she suspected that maybe her husband and his brother Billy had been involved somehow in the disappearance of Sister Cathy. Um, Billy's brother cited the fact that we killed a girl and buried her behind the shop as the reason for his drinking. And he would say this sometimes when he was drunk. And his daughter heard him say that sometimes as well. She was interviewed in the in the show. And the place where Sister Cathy's body was found was halfway between, yeah. as the crow flies, yeah. between the Schmidt house and the Schmidt shop. Yeah, the Schmidt workplace. The work yeah. shop. So, like, we buried her behind the shop was actually a feasible line to say as well, because that's where her body was found. But unburied, though, is weird. Yeah, but, I mean, that she might have been buried elsewhere and then yeah. d- dug up to be found. We, we wouldn't know. Billy committed suicide months after the murder. Um... Billy was a known smoker of a specific specific cigarette brand mm. um, that matched a butt found near Kathy's body. Um, and apparently they do have prints from that cigarette butt in yeah, the case, but they haven't, obviously, they, it's an ongoing case. So they, they have DNA. They have DNA, yeah. And the cop uh, was very surprised at Rich White's investigative skills. Ryan. Orion White's investigative skills during the uh, documentary recording because Ryan was asking him, like, so have you got anything from the crime scene? He's like, no. If we were to tell you, would you confirm it? Like, go on then. Yeah. Like, the pure, like, oh, how the fuck did you know that? You know? Yeah. Um, they've exhumed Masco's body already to check DNA and they found it's fruitless. Right. But uh, they've yet to exhume Billy Schmidt. To see if his DNA matches with the, the what left of the cigarette butt. Mm. A weird thing that I felt yes. about Billy yeah. was that when he was spiralling out and drinking loads and doing loads of drugs and freaking out, like he, he only lasted maybe a few months yeah. after Sister Cathy's death before he killed himself. Yeah. And he kept on going on about the woman in the attic, the woman in the attic. Yeah. And was it the sister-in-law that went up and yeah. checked the attic then? Yeah. And found that there was a fucking nun's uniform on a, a mannequin, a mannequin yeah. up there. Like, that's the creepiest shit I ever heard. But to me, that's like somebody playing with somebody. Like that the the people who were responsible, f- or who encouraged him to kill Sister Cathy, yeah. were like intimidating him into killing yes. himself, so he'd be like, what cozies? Well, intimidating him into not talking to anybody, going like, you know. Yeah. 
the, I don't think he put the mannequin there. Put no, it that I don't way. think so. Yeah. So he was living in an apartment opposite Sister Cathy's apartment. And after her death, moved in with his sister-in-law and brother. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But I do know that... He died by suicide. He died by suicide. And if the car theory, the inexplicable car theory, makes any sense at all, it's that Billy was waiting for Sister Cathy. Came, she came out of the car with her groceries and said, I'll come back for the buns in a minute. And Billy nabbed her, forced her back into the car, drove the car to a place, killed her, left her there, got muck in the car and drove back to the apartment, left the car across the road and went back into his own apartment. That would make sense of a nonsensical situation because yeah. he didn't have to drive anywhere else. That was where he lived. Yeah, that's true. I yeah. mean, that's the only thing that kind of comes together on that. Yeah, It's either that or Jerry Coob and McKeown got rid of a bottle. So it's, I'm trying to put the car back at the place where it's yeah. not supposed to be, you know? Yeah. If it makes any sense. Um, Billy Schmidt, I don't know, was he just mental? P- possibly. Mm. I mean, there's worse cunts out there. Another person who appears in the documentary who was falling apart like a wet cake <laughs> yeah. was Edgar Davidson, who was accused of the murder by his first wife, who was in a similar situation to Billy's brother. Spied coming home with blood on his shirt. Yeah. I think that Edgar Davidson, and you have to watch the documentary to get everything about him, um, I think he was just a fucking cruel, narcissistic, wife-beaten... Guy looking for attention. Terrible, horrible person who saw a chance to intimidate his wife by some weird TV joke. Like, do you know the way, like, when we're watching telly and I'm always kind of making out that you're racist hilariously? And then yes. you're And and because I, I know absolutely you're the opposite of that. Yeah. But what makes it funny is when you, like, mix up, like, black actors in movies. And you're, is that the guy from this? And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I don't. But, like, I know you don't on purpose, but, like, I make it out to be a bigger deal than it is. Like, that's a hilarious But I don't jail. mess up black actors you make out that I do yeah to make me feel like I'm racist but I know I'm not mixing them up yeah sometimes so what you're doing is gaslighting me sometimes you mix them up okay but it's a funny joke okay uh, to, to me. you <laughs> <laughs> like snap the, but you owe me a coke it's a harmless thing right mm-hmm. but imagine if I was like a terrible cunt who wanted you to feel like oppressively violently you know intimidated all the time it'd be very easy to do that to find reasons and ways to do that if you wanted to so when Sister Cathy was killed, yeah, and your man had come home with bloody a bloody shirt a couple of nights before, and his wife was kind of putting two and two together and making five and saying, "Hey, girl, did you kill that girl?" And he was like, "I can see the fear in your eyes." Yes, I did. What are you going to do about it? And he just went along with the story. Now, where that kind of makes a little bit less sense is when they went and interviewed him on the documentary, and some of the things. That he had on his person and that he said and that were in the car as evidence kind of match with him being the man. Like him driving with both feet. He drives with both feet, which is apparently a rare thing. I don't know, I don't drive. But if I was driving, I'd use one for the accelerator, one for the brake. Apparently that's not what people do. They use one. They move in an automatic. You see, you always use two feet in a manual, but uh, or a stick, as they say in the States. Mm. But in an automatic, people do this. They wave from one to the other. Right, so go from accelerator to brake. Yeah. So he used two feet, which was rare enough. Yeah. And the proof that that people there was a two footed driver was that there was muck on on both pedals from two different footprints or whatever. Yeah. Also, he had upon his person, and he gave as a present to his wife. I'm yeah, sure. his first wife. Yeah. His first wife, 
uh, was a necklace with a pendant on it. Yeah. That had a, a wedding bell and the birthstone of the husband of Sister Kathy's sister. Yeah. The fiancé at the, the time. The fiancé. So presumably, if Edgar Davidson... It wasn't his wife's birthstone anyway. No. Yeah. If Edgar Davidson had killed Sister Kathy and stolen the necklace and gave it to his wife, that would be in and around the kind of design or kind of, you know, uh, birthstone that Sister Kathy, who was very thoughtful and the Talk about how thoughtful she was and how everything meant something in the documentary. That she was to buy a gift for her sister to commemorate her engagement. It will be something like a wedding bell with the birthstone of her husband-to-be. Yeah. And Edgar Evanson managed to get this and it makes no sense for him to have it. And he gave it to his wife as a present. But also he was like, I have no memory of that. He, like he wasn't helpful in the documentary. He wasn't, but he's a daughter old man. Yeah. But if you're to think about it, like, same situation as Billy Schmidt's brother. Yeah. Coming home, blood on the shirt. Uh, He confessed to his wife, like he threatened his wife. Yeah. And, uh, I did it, and you know, sure, I'll kill you as well. And then ends up turning up with, like, a, you know, I couldn't understand how they couldn't find that Hecht's Jewelers, that's what it was called. Yeah. How they couldn't find, bring that necklace to that Jewelers and go, did you make this? They did, in the documentary, uh, Gemma Hoskins brought it to, like, a duelist and found out, like... Um, Some information about well, it. You know, how it could be made or what it would be made from, or it was a custom job or whatever. The history of something like that, was it just, you know, like a claddering, there's fucking millions of them, you never tell yeah. the difference. Was this something that was bespoke? And if it was, surely Hex would know that Sister Cathy ordered it and then bought it that day and would be able to identify it from a design or a receipt or some kind of an invoice somewhere to be able to go yeah that was sister Cathy's. she ordered it for her sister she asked for that birthstone she bought it on that night and then edgar davidson shows up and gives it to his wife that's fucking bang to rights then he's done but nobody knew he gave it to his wife and the wife never wore it because yeah. she was like he beat me up and he wasn't very nice and also we didn't she, he never gave me jewelry and why would he give me a birthstone that wasn't mine so she said it just sat in her jewelry box for years yeah, but after when she when she came forward and said this is yeah this is it, surely now they should be able to go back and find out definitively whether it did come from that jewelers or not. No. Yeah, I don't know. They, I I think the documentary would have if they could have. So the last suspect and the very nebulous, uh, unidentifiable brother Bob, um, which comes in in very vague memories from Gene Weiner, who says that there was this mysterious figure who was always in the background in Father Maskell's office who often sexually abused her, but she can't picture a face. She can't come up with a name. It's just this looming figure. Some people even think it's like an amalgam of the men, the multiple men that she can't uh, identify. They're just kind of all melded into this Brother Bob character. Nobody knows who he may even be, but uh, Uncle Bobby could be uh, uh, Billy Schmidt's nephew uh, mentions uh, Brian Schmidt mentions an uncle Bobby in an interview describing the events uh, leading up to uh, disposing of sister Kathy's corpse could be uh, Bob was Billy Schmidt's like Bobby Schmidt was his brother with the blood on his shirt that could be brother Bob uh, who knows like nobody really knows who brother Bob is but he's definitely like a dark figure in the story mm. and one of the most mysterious so I mean who who could it be uh, some of the wilder theories then, uh, Joseph Maskell 
as I said before, been involved in government MKUltra and LSD mind control experiments. Some could say quite possibly yes. Kathy Sesnick's body was found near Fort Meade, and so was Joyce Malecki's, a woman who went missing just a couple of days after Sister Kathy, as we said before. Um, a retired detective called James Rothstein was taken with investigating the child trafficking and satanic ritual abuse through what we know as Project MKUltra, uh, where blackmail operations were carried out by the CAA on politicians and celebrities in honey trap situations involving young girls in order to gain control over them. And Rothstein even goes so far as to claim that this is the real reason behind the Watergate scandal, which we'll, we will talk more oh about on the Pizzagate episode. Yeah. The shit goes deep. And like, this is why I think uh, Maskell couldn't be found guilty or couldn't be brought to yeah. justice because the shit goes deep, 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 deep. So Fort Meade, which was local to uh, Maskell's diocese or whatever, yes. this was one of the main sites used in the MK Ultra mind control program. Uh, it was specifically tasked with looking into astral projection, psychic communication, and of course, uh, ritual, psychological, sexual abuse in order to crack the psyche to put people in a state where they could be put into a fugue state or a Manchurian candidate type state. Yeah. Uh, gr- like gross hypnotic suggestion, like terrible, terrible fucking inhuman shit. And all that stuff is real. All that stuff is documented. You can find all the documents and all that stuff. It's totally real. MK Ultra. So, um, it is a long shot, I suppose, but the two women killed by a man using mind control techniques and psychedelic substances found next to a military base specializing in MK Ultra hypnosis and mind control operations. A small bit sus. It might not be the answer, but it definitely takes an awful lot of boxes and explains an awful lot about the deep, deep ties and reasons for him to be uh, moved around and secured mm. uh, the compounds that Maskell would administer to the girls in cups of cola mm. talked about this girl uh, Lil Hughes was her name um, she was a typist and very good at keeping meeting notes and Maskell employed her to come to his office and take notes when he was counselling the girls and she took them in shorthand as she remembers writing a lot of sexual stuff stuff that was inappropriate and Maskell would dive deeper and deeper into it uh, uh, she was a witness to the discussions of Maskell bringing these girls to the gynecologist, which is where most of that testimony comes from. Yeah. And she remembers often being given a drink of Coca-Cola in a little cup as her reward for her shorthanded work. But one day she felt woozy afterwards and she lost a bunch of time. She doesn't remember anything that happened. And uh, she then thinks afterwards, I was probably sexually molested at that yeah. point. I was disassociated and molested. And she remembers being shown, and all the girls in Kyo being shown a movie called Marnie, starring Sean Connery, which is about a, a woman who was uh, interfered with and she had lost memories and she would, they were all coming back to her and she was kind of being, I guess, man-managed by the char- Sean Connery character. Like, very weird hypnotic suggestions and, and kind of um, uh, propaganda. And doesn't she fall in love with the Sean Connery character very at weird the movie. end? Yeah. Like, what a weird movie to show the kids, yeah. especially ones that you're raping and then deleting their memories. Yeah. Like... Um, and then I, I think Sister Russell definitely has some answers. I would say freezing their memories. Freezing. Not deleting. Uh, obfuscating. But Sister Russell, was she scared to keep him quiet? What happened the night before Kathy died? Was Jerry Coob involved? Why did she ring him first? What of the girl who visited them? What about the letter that was given to Sister Kathy's sister that she then gave to the police and then was completely, no, she didn't even look at it and then it was, Given away, there's so many threads, so many ties. There are t- there's so many ties that it's impossible to come up with one single theory. Theory, and I think that's possible. That that that's kind of how 
the case has, has, yeah. has been able to stay unsolved. I'm like, fucking more confused than when we started the show, to be honest. It is. And like, we didn't even talk about Dr. Richter. We didn't get to have time. Like, <sighs> yeah. basically... I would go. I would point you to the Foul Play podcast yes. for for more information about that. Particularly, Gemma Hoskins uh, interviews a woman called Liz. I don't know if that's a pseudonym, but um, she was a nurse for Doctor Richter. Yes, and that testimony is fucked up. It was very very interesting, but like there was a lot of, say one thing you know that he used to do was he definitely had ties with Father Maskell. Father Maskell definitely brought um, young girls to him. That was known by several people who worked with the doctor. Um, this woman said that the law at the time was that you once uh, girls or females, stu- uh, patients, clothes were removed, there had to be another person in the room yes. by law. And every time... A supervisory yeah, position, like a nurse yeah. or something. Or just eyes, you yeah. know, for, I suppose, just to protect the person who was in that vulnerable position having no clothes on and their feet in stirrups or whatever. And every time she would be dismissed by him. By Dr. Richter. And she was very upset on the episode with where she was speaking to Gemma Hoskins and like very distressed at the idea that she might have been able to help and didn't. But she did She did go to her superior and say, I have a problem with this. But she kind of was like, "He's he could be, you know, getting in trouble or whatever. The thing that she said that she fucked her head up was that when she was being dismissed out of the room what she was worried about leaving the room was that oh my god Dr. Richter's put me out of the room that woman could say anything about him she was worried for the doctor's sake which is like I guess you're you're inculcated into that thought process yeah um Dr. Richter also had in his in his uh what would you call it his uh practice his his Laboratory? I don't know what to say. What do you call it? Like a like his, operating, his, room his or operating room. His room. Um, they had a basement area. Yeah. Where he had an identical version of his office down in the basement. Yeah. And Father Maskell and other priests would arrive after hours. Yeah. Everybody else would be dismissed. They'd lock the doors. Other men. Other yeah. men. Yeah. And they'd all always have like young girls with them. Yeah. And the other men would supervise. The young girls getting procedures done by Doctor Richter, yeah, which according to Liz included uh, DN DN. Well, Liz said that she was always dismissed before these people were brought in, so she didn't know what procedures they were having. But there was another student nurse in the hospital that Doctor Richter worked in, and she saw that young girls were brought in by Doctor Ma- by Father Maskell um, at eleven p.m. into the hospital for DNCs, and What's she a said DNC now? it's like to you know. A clear out after after a miscarriage, right? But actually, what it was often used for because it was a Catholic hospital and you weren't allowed to perform terminations, it was used as you know an excuse for having uh, like a de facto abortion. Yeah, kinda, right. Yeah. So a, a DNC. So there's a lot of a DNC. There's a lot of information in the Foul Play podcast relating to that. Like we we literally could not get to all of the information. You could do a twenty hour podcast on this, and yeah. you could do fucking five series about yeah. the stuff that Gemma Hoskins and. Uh, if you don't know anything about the 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 case, I'd yeah. start with the Netflix documentary, and if you're thirsty for more, I would go to the Foul, Foul Play, Play podcast. podcast. Foul Play, or there's a Reddit that has. A, a fountain of information on yeah. it. Um, I'd be putting up sources as well on our Gilded server. I mean, we've got off the fence 
off the fence is there is there is no fence. There's no there's just a wide <laughs> it's too open much field. and now I have a sore eye. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, it's in the too gil- much. in the Gilded server I'm gonna make a channel for this episode and we can throw in our theories, our links and all that kind of stuff. I, th- I think I'm section. gonna do a quick off defence just before we go. Okay, let's do an off defence then quickly. I think my theory is based on the information that I have. My in, my theory is that this went so far, so high, so powerfully, that Sister Russell was terrified that Father Maskell and Father, possibly Magnus, some other person, came to Sister Cathy's apartment the night before she went missing. Another student from Keogh was visiting with her boyfriend that night and saw them at in that apartment. Sister Russell was also present for this and Whatever took place that night meant that Sister Kathy went missing the next night and Sister Russell did not behave in a way that I would consider normal for somebody who is just instantly going, oh, my roommate went out to the shops. She hasn't come back. I wonder where she is. I'm going to call the police. She didn't do that. She called Father Jerry Coob and Pete McKeown. And I think the reason for that is because she was terrified and she knew that calling the police wasn't going to be a safe thing to do. Because the police were in on it. Yes, she knew that. So I think Sister Russell and Jerry Coob have secrets, but those secrets were to protect, to stop other people from going missing, from getting murdered. That's what I think. Including the children in the school. Yes. So I think... You know what, I agree with you. Yeah, that's my my off-defense. And to add that, I take that as, as... Part of my off defense as well, and not just because I'm in love with you. <laughs> and I have to agree with everything you say. That's Thanks. the rules of being in love. <laughs> it is that the person who actually did the damage to Sister Cathy was Skippy and Billy Schmidt. Right. They were the like hired they the, loons. They were the, the the heavy hands. Yeah, yeah. Because of their fascination with the Catholic Church. Yeah. Their obvious like disregard for social norms or whatever. Yeah. And the fact that, you know. Sister Cathy wasn't found only a couple of months before Billy Schmidt killed himself. Yeah. And they had, it, it, it's, it, it seems to follow on that the psychological manipulation that Joseph Maskell meted out either pharmaceutically or psychologically on his victims plays into a very quick state of psychosis from Billy Schmidt. Like stress alone wouldn't do that to you. Yeah. So he started taking drugs, he started drinking. Like, where was he getting the drugs and what was he taking? Was he taking Thorazine? Was he taking mescaline? Was he he being fucking, you know, uh, uh, giving a load of LSD? And then they'd ring him up on the phone and go, Ah, Billy, this is the devil. You're going to die, Billy. this is the nun in the attic. Or this is the fucking nun in the attic that's coming to get you. Like, and he eventually killed himself. Like, brilliant, we don't have to do with Billy Schmidt no more. Yeah. I think Edgar Davidson had something to do with it. Yeah. Um, In some capacity, there's there's no reason why... You wouldn't think that. Yeah. But an old man going, I don't remember anything. The Nazis used to say that at Nuremberg as well. Like, yeah. I, I don't remember. Like, sorry. Yeah. It, was a lot, it was too long ago. Or, or not at Nuremberg, but in these Sharon tri- May said it as well. I don't recollect that there was any pornographic yeah. material. When they find these guns in, in Argentina, they're like, I don't remember nothing. Like, Edgar Davis is like, I don't know. It's like, the only thing tying him to that is that weird necklace. And nobody can tie the that weird to Sister necklace Cathy and definitively. Two foot so. driving. Yeah. Anyway, look at go look it up. It's a brilliantly made documentary. The Highly recommend it. On uh, Netflix. But if you're in any way 
not able maybe don't watch it well, you wouldn't listen to all of this if you weren't able but look at <laughs> go check out the keepers yeah. if you want to support the show patreon.com slash those conspiracy guys is the place to be you can watch this on video and see our beautiful shining faces and uh, you get all of the episodes ad free as well any of the links for the socials are in the description below all it leaves me to do is say get on to that gilded server instead of discord and thanks very much discord for all you've done but uh, I'm afraid to stay on yet because you're going to cancel me like Vimeo did Tui. And you should actually have no spit left anymore. Um, so the final thing to do is say thank you very much to my wonderful, lovely, if a small bit rushed, and a painting of an eye. Yeah, I have a bad eye. I uh, hope it's not uh, pink eye. In my guest, it's not pink <laughs> eye. Uh, uh, my, my lovely, lovely guest, uh, Miss Claire Fox. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me <laughs> in your life. No. Where would we be? Better go down and relieve our babysitter, Let's my mother. Um, so thanks very much for listening folks this has been Those Conspiracy Guys my name's Gordo my name's Claire and uh, that has been The Keepers Lord of Mercy on Sister Cathy yeah and all the rest of them yeah and uh, look at hopefully one day we'll find an answer yeah that's it goodbye bye